Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. edition of the Hagman Report. Today is Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018, and we're so glad you joined us tonight. We have a great show lined up for you tonight, full of awesome guests, and we're going to start this first half hour, this first segment, with news, and it's me and John Robertson is co-hosting the show with me today, as uh, my father is in some meetings, and but he is in the building. And John and I are going to cover news this first half hour, then we're going to be joined by the president of the Western Journal, also the CEO of USA Network, Floyd Brown. Then we will be joined by Stephen Menking from 8 to 9 and Stan Dale, per usual, on Tuesdays from 9 to 10. I want to make a, a few announcements here before we jump right into the news. Go to Coach Dave Live or through Hagman Report. Find the Occupy banner, Occupy 2018 banner. That is a conference that is upcoming April 20th, 21st, and 22nd in Canton, Ohio. This event has a number of awesome speakers uh, from Russ Dizdar, Coach Dave, Pastor Mike Spaulding, uh, Doug Hagman, myself. John's going to be there. It's going to be a, a great event, and that's in Canton, Ohio, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd, which is just right around the corner. We're talking just a few weeks away. There are some tickets still available, so if you do want to attend, take advantage of that opportunity and get the tickets while they are still up for grabs because I don't know how many are left or how long they will be available for. Now, we have uh, a bunch of news to get into today and a bunch of stuff breaking just today, just this afternoon. A shooting at YouTube looked like a uh, speculation was in the beginning that there was a mass shooting or an active shooter at YouTube in San Bruno, California. Now, there was a shooting there. The only death was to the shooter who was a woman who was white apparently and four people were injured I have not been able to find out if those injuries all were consistent with a gunshot wound uh, I know at least there were uh, three patients a 36 year old man in critical condition one in serious condition a 27 year old in fair condition and uh, there is a lot of speculation as to what transpired but from what is coming out now, it looks like this might have been a some kind of uh, workplace uh, relationship, lovers quarrel, violence. I guess workplace violence mixed in with uh, domestic violence in the workplace, uh, where a, a woman apparently shot her boyfriend, or however. We're going to get more information on that, but uh, definitely a scare. And and yeah, John, uh, jump in here because when I got into the studio, I had heard about what was going on per the radio. And I was um, all day looking at the news till maybe about 2.30. So I didn't see this break. But when I was coming into the studio, I heard Sean Hannity talking about it. And by that point, he was reporting that it was um, possibly a, uh, a domestic thing at the YouTube. But make no mistake, I imagine there's going to be rolled out uh, this campaign against guns. Um, people are going to be blamed who are constitutionalists, who are conservatives. And you're going to see a continued attack on the Second Amendment due to this shooting. 
What do you think, John? Indeed, I mean, we're already we seeing some of that coming from the media. Indeed, we will. In fact, when we look at what just happened in San Bruno, we know we've got uh, four hospitalized. Uh, Brent Andrew, spokesman for San Francisco General, uh, at uh, the time of this posting, which was just about 42 minutes ago, uh, noted that a 32-year-old woman was in serious condition. I think that she's the shooter, and I believe she has since deceased. But uh, what we're going to see as the aftermath of this, and Joe, you and I made a distinction on the Hagman Daily Show in the wake of the Valentine's Day shooting in Broward County. This looks uh, prima facie like it's a very uh, similar situation where it's a it's a lover's quarrel. It's some kind of a personal one-on-one type thing that then carried over into workplace violence. Now, when we have people hospitalized and or dead, uh, I'm not sure how significant the distinction is, but it's not the same mentality per se as a Virginia Tech right. or Sandy Hook, et cetera. Well, one thing that's interesting that has come out that KGO-TV is reporting the shooter is believed to be a white woman wearing a headscarf and a dark top, but police did not immediately confirm it. There are also workers from that YouTube uh, facility who were putting out tweets, uh, one even saying that the shooter had a shooting mask on. Now, I have no idea what a shooting mask <laughs> would look like. I imagine it's some just a mask uh, that somebody uses while they're uh, shooting. But those reports don't seem to be accurate. So uh, that and that was just some stuff that was going on on Twitter. But people are asking, what's the headscarf for? Was it a headscarf or was it a hijab? That, that's a, a, a distinction that needs to be made. And I'm sure with, with this person dead who was the shooter, obviously we're not going to hear their side of the story, Obviously, and there's no justification for what they've done. But what were the motives? Was it really a a motive based on, a personal relationship, or was it terrorism? The authorities say the incident does not appear to be terrorism, terrorist-related, and the uh, everything is is back to normal for the most part. But very uh, scary, I imagine, for the people involved. And a lot of people thought at first that this was a disgruntled, demonetized YouTuber who committed this crime, and it looks to be an employee of YouTube. But we will report more on that. As we move forward, everybody go to HaglinReport.com. Visit and bookmark the website. Check it daily. There are a number of great pieces up there, original content pieces uh, from Bill Chapman. He wrote a piece today, Sounds Like Teen Brains, and that it's a good piece. you got to read the piece. And, John, you did, you did a great job on an article we talked about on The Daily Show, Social Justice Monsters. And this is a, uh, one of the best pieces I've, I've read that you've written, John. Oh, well, thank you. And it really... Uh, let's get into this a little bit. Why the title, Social Justice Monsters? Well, the title, thank you, Joe. The title occurred to me uh, when I began to think about Brother Marcus Samuel. And for long-time listeners, they'll recall that Brother Marcus was a regular on the Hagman Report back in 2013, 2014. And the calling that the Lord placed upon his life was a unique one uh, in that Brother Marcus was relocated under a spiritual mandate to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and it was there that he met uh, Curtis Horse, who would come to be his adopted son, or as he would term it, his spiritual son, Curtis himself, a member of the Lakota Sioux Nation. And what really stood out to me, Joe, about Brother Marcus, and again, this is going back five years or so on the Hagman Report, is that he and Curtis regularly, they came on and they always talked about two things. They talked about what they were doing 
boots on the ground, the mendandities, if you will, uh, to help the Lakota Sioux people, bringing them firewood, bringing them propane, uh, refurbishing a trailer for someone to oh, live yeah. in. I have know, a package of pictures, actually, right by my feet, from Brother Marcus, uh, before he died, maybe a month or two before he died, which he sent to me, showing the, uh, the horrible conditions that some of these people live in, and then what they were able to do to help, uh, the renovations from putting a door on a trailer in minus 40-degree weather, or, uh, you know, fixing a trailer so it has indoor plumbing. Things that we take for granted a yeah, lot in big, our life. big deal. And I've actually personally been to the uh, Pine Ridge Reservation. Uh, in 2002, we did a series of Chevy Avalanche commercials on the ranch where they shot the big buffalo chase uh, in Dances with Wolves. Pine Ridge Reservation is not far from Rapid City, South Dakota, where we stayed. But I digress. The other thing Brother Marcus talked about, and this used to make my hair stand up on end, and Joe, I'm sure you'd agree, is the the manifestations they were beginning to see at Pine Ridge. You know, Brother Marcus and the other uh, Christians would show up at the at the sun dances and at the at the sweat lodges, and they would be there uh, under the Great Commission to share the gospel with the Lakota Sioux Nation. And on numerous occasions, Brother Marcus talked about seeing actual. I mean, for lack of a better a term, forgive me, I, I've got a little earpiece trouble here. For lack of a better term. Uh, monsters. And then what happened is, again, in 2013, early 2014, we begin to receive callers. In the third hour, we typically took calls. And, Joe, I don't know if you remember this, but we uh, received a call one night from a lady who had sent a picture to the studio of something that she had captured outside of her bedroom window. Yeah. And that was a, a, a an unnerving optic, to say the least. So drawing on this history of Hagman Report, I began to look at uh, two things that have kind of been on my cultural radar lately. Uh, the Burning Man Festival, which on Tuesday sold over 27,000 tickets in 30 minutes, or just wow. over $6,000 in ticket sales per second. How much is a ticket? If, if, uh, the know. tickets were $425 starting. And, and this so, is a festival, what, a weekend festival where people get together, they have orgies, they do drugs, there's music, there's, uh, it's just in the desert, and they burn, it's like the Wicker Man, they burn this big, yeah, it's it's Babylonian in its in its in its context. And Burning Man was started uh out of the San Francisco Bay Area and it really came out of the 1990s rave scene. But what Burning Man has become, particularly with the death of Aaron Mitchell, and I want to give fair warning to all the listeners and viewers, please go to Hagman Report and check out the article and a special thanks to uh Steve Quayle and Tracy Beans for reposting it. The optics are not to be trifled with. Keep your kids away from them. I'm going to tell you straight up that I had I placed optics in the article of a Burning Man attendee in 2017 whose name was Aaron Mitchell. He was born in Oklahoma, flew to Burning Man from Switzerland, and on the last evening of the Burning Man event at Black Rock City, Nevada, he actually ran willingly into the three-story conflagration, and he burned to death in front of 50,000 people. Those optics are, they were horrified. Those optics are right there in the article, but I also mention in the article that many of those in attendance who watch this man immolate right in front of them purchased tickets to the 2018 Burning Man as soon as they went on sale. Mm -hmm. So Burning Man got me thinking about, about the, the chasm between Christians who have a level of discernment, a modicum of discernment, and how they view something, and I think Burning Man's a great example. You see, to Joe Hagman and myself and Tech Eric and Jackie, Burning Man has satanic or dark connotations all over it. In fact, if you read the article, you'll see that I've got aerial optics from Mecca as well as from 
Black Rock City, and you can see that Saudi Arabia and Nevada have this in common. They're even they're even laid out the same. But I also started to look at the body modification that's so popular in this subculture and many of the type of characters who go to Burning Man. And Joe, it is, and a lot of people don't want to hear about this because uh, people will say, "Well, you know, I'm a." There are a lot of Christians who have tattoos and 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 weird piercings and uh, have done things even in the past that still are with them to this day that they can't. Uh, change, and there are other people who believe that it has no bearing on their their faith whatsoever. And we, but we have seen ex- this taken to the extremes. And that we've done shows in the past about you know with Steve Quayle and and others about the the dangers of tattoos. And we've met some wonderful people who've who've taught on the subject. But we're not just talking about that. If you want to see what we're talking about, go to the pictures. We're talking about where these people you know put these uh you know twenty inch circles in their ears and have their lips sealed shut or, you know, their teeth filed down to look like vampires or lizards or the alligator man, for instance. People get those horns put in their head. Uh, anything to look more demonic. I mean, bottom line, that's all it is, a self-mutilation um, for the purposes of looking more demonic. But some people apparently find that appealing. Well, and the, and the question, thank you, Joe. And the, the question that I pose to all the listeners and viewers, and by the way, the comment section on that article is open, so please feel free uh, to comment. Please make your comments cogent and topic relevant. There are a couple of trolls on there that are having a great time. But the question, Joe, and I'll just pose this to you. Is there a point, does there come a point where the lost, as I noted in the article, who cannot hear the still small voice of the Good Shepherd, we know that if you continue to submit to willful sin, you can become reprobate. But is there another phase that occurs where these people through low self-esteem or through loneliness or through a combination of all these devilish tools, Joe, do they begin to emulate or to try to make themselves appear like the demons who mm-hmm. have contractual uh, efficacy and power over them? Absolutely. Whether unknowingly or, or knowingly, uh, whether conscious or subconscious, when you are not under God's protection, there are uh, evils in this world that, to one degree or another, will have their hooks in you. And whether you're wholly turned over or partially turned over to those, it is going to affect your thinking, your behavior, and it's going to do so in a negative way. And the more that you uh, continue to push back or, or not repent to the Lord or ignore him, these things are going to get worse, and your heart's going to grow colder and colder and more distant until you are ter- wholly turned over. And why is this important? Why are we talking about this on a new show? And I'll tell you exactly why. Because no other news shows really deal with this. I mean, there are some out there in the alternative media, and we need more. But what we are facing, first and foremost, all of this that we talk about is a spiritual battle at the core. And everything else is secondary to that. And we need to remember that no matter if we're looking into politics, if we're looking into the economy, current events, into geopolitics, if we're looking into society... Uh, what we see, you know, these different social movements, it's all about the battle of, of the spiritual warfare. And, John, this is exactly uh, in what the context you wrote about in your article. And we talked about, I would urge people to listen to The Daily Show if they want a, a much more in-depth analysis of this article, because we spent most of the day talking about this and what it means. But what really gets me is in this article, you have pictures of children with full-body tattoos, and these horrible piercings. Yeah, How can it, parents get away with doing this to their children? Well, it's and it's you pose a good question there because 
where, and I may do a follow-up piece on this, but where among us are the plastic surgeons who will willingly take on a patient that walks in and says, being of sound mind and spirit, I would like you to slice my tongue in half so that I can have a forked tongue. And then what I'm going to do is have green scales tattooed all over my face so I can be Crocodile Man. And this doctor is going to actually perform the surgery and then hand them a a prescription for painkillers? These plastic surgeons must be out there somewhere because, again, if you take a look at the article, it's replete with tons of images. But again, Joe, the one that really crosses the line. And, And I'll hand this back to you with this, Joe. Is it from the same mindset, from the same spirit, a parent who would take their child to be tattooed. There was a, a video from the UK on Drudge just two days ago purportedly showing a under two-year-old being tattooed in London. Crazy. But it, does this come from the same spirit that that tricks parents into sending their three-year-old for gender reassignment surgery, yeah, Joe? absolutely. It does. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. It does, and it's, um, you know, something that, it, you know, we, we're not allowed to talk about in the public arena in fear of offending somebody uh you know you can't tell the truth anymore without offending somebody or triggering them uh you know or being said that you're judging them and on and on and on but this is as some of the comments point out this is an indicator of where our the decline of our society has gone and where it will continue to go as we see the acceptance not only of this kind of behavior in much more perverted and decadent behavior being accepted in our and promoted in our society. Most importantly, it has been picked up and is being promoted also by the church. And when that happens, we really need to stand up and take notice because we are on very dangerous ground, especially when it is in the church. It's always been in the world. But the church, especially the Christian church. And Joe, you know what? That's the last line of defense, right? The last line of defense. And and I would uh, respectfully and humbly submit to listeners and viewers that that this right here is one of the last lines of defense. Now, we don't purport to be a ministry, but what separates the Hagman Report from so many of the other platforms, even our counterparts throughout the new media, is that we will take a few moments of airtime. We will never back down from this. We will never... Uh, detract this from our mission statement, but a a counterpart, uh, colleagues of ours who we regard as dear friends in this fight, Joe, and I'm speaking of True News. Uh, TrueNews.com, 20 years Rick Wiles and his news team have been bringing, as their title indicates, True News to the world. If you're looking for them on YouTube, you better bring a lunch because as of yesterday, True News, truenews.com, T-R-U-N-E-W-S.com is no longer on YouTube. Why? They went from a pristine record. They had no strikes, no copyright infringements, nothing. And overnight, two of their pieces from 2014, as well as a film review that they did in 2017, and what was the film? The Promise. An epic mega picture, a historical picture about the Armenian genocide. That's what YouTube found offensive and took an enormous organization like True News off YouTube. We will stand by True News 100%. God bless Rick Wiles and his team. Yeah, and I do believe that they are going to get their channel reinstated, uh, especially after what you told me. It wasn't a, a religious thing. It wasn't a bullying or a copyright thing. It was strictly... Uh, on some kind of movie review, some obscure review from two years ago. And when you see that, it's obviously a coordinated attack 
because nobody's complaining about content that's up there from two years ago when there's hundreds, if not thousands of hours of content that could be just as objectionable that was, that has been uploaded since then. It does not make sense. Also, uh, a, a friend of the show, Jason Goodman, who had a YouTube channel, Crowdsource the Truth, also had his YouTube channel shut down yesterday after he said he was gaining a, 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 some great momentum. But he said he started a new YouTube channel, Crowdsource the truth too with the number two and he just wanted us to put that out there so people knew that they could still find him on youtube but what are we going to do about the censorship problem what can we do about the censorship problem and i'm sure regardless of the motivations of this youtube shooter uh youtube's going to take this as some kind of you know personal uh attack and will increase the censorship most likely directly related to the shooting even though i i imagine it's not related but we're going to be able to get into this with our next guest, Mr. Floyd Brown. He is the president of the Western Center for Journalism, or the Western Journalist, as well as the CEO of USA Network. And he's been around the media for a very long time. And we're going to get his opinions on what we see happening here moving forward with the huge increase in uh, in trends of social media and alternative media activity versus that of the dying mainstream media. And it really is a battle that... Uh, we've seen the lengths that the mainstream media and, and the powers that be will go to stop the alternative media channels from demonizing them and mocking them constantly to censoring them and twisting what they say, putting lies in their mouth. This is all done in attempt to, uh, you know, shut these people up, discredit them and make them look crazy. And that's, they would like nothing more than their, only their voice to be heard. And I, we got some feedback for the Sinclair thing, uh, the Sinclair media group. Uh, I put up an article yesterday, and I understand the message was, uh, you know, a, a positive one, or, or it was calling out fake news. <clears throat> My problem is not with the message. My problem is with the control, being able to take, unless it's a, a an emergency notification, you know, the <clears throat> Empire State Building's on fire, or a plane crashed in, over here. You don't need that level of control to disseminate a message. You don't need one message or one piece of paper to be disseminated to you know, 150 of the, the top cities in the uh, networks across the world for this ne- those networks to read it line by line. That's propaganda. Whether it's telling the truth or not, to me, that's still propaganda. So we caught some crap for that. And I wasn't calling out the message. I was calling out the tactics, the way they were disseminating the message. Well, so the, I just wanted to make that clear. The tactic can be, can be dubious. Now, we know that this sort of originated, or at least it it was absorbed in the collective conscience of the public, if you will, with Amber Alerts. And I have personally been on set. In fact, I remember working at MTV when an Amber Alert came in, and you've got, you know, 100 people standing there, and all right. of their phones go off that's, at the same that's time. That's one thing, yeah. Okay, so we're trying to track down a missing child. We know that in missing children cases, the sooner you can get rubber on the road, the more likely you are to find the child. But, Joe, uh, this piece really boggled my mind, and I pulled it specifically from True News because I want to give truenews.com a lot of love tonight. But it says here, Macron, that would be Emmanuel Macron, the new globalist president of France, he says that uh, Facebook and Google are just too big to fail, but are too big to be governed. And the takeaway from this piece, Joe, uh, following his announcement of a 1.5 billion euro investment in artificial intelligence research in France, President Macron told Wired magazine that even though companies like Facebook and Google have brought jobs to his country and are a welcome part of their ecosystem, they have a very classical issue 
in regard to their monopolistic practices. Now, Joe, what bothers me about this is whether Facebook is run from Zuckerberg down or from a guy like Emmanuel Macron down, aren't we just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are so many problems with where technology is going, where what social media is doing our, to our society. Paul Joseph Watson you know, put out a, a video today, and I, it was interesting right before I checked YouTube. I was sitting here at the desk, and I said, you know, uh, Paul Joseph Watson has only put out one or two videos in the last three weeks. And he does really good stuff, so I always like to see when it was updated. And sure enough, I went on YouTube and he had one up today, The Truth About Social Media. And this, this uh, it's a really good piece where it talks about uh, what is involved in people's psyche when it comes to social media, why they do it, why they're so engaged in it, and the, the harmful effects it has. But we are seeing, uh, we're moving into a new, I don't know, a new age of the Internet and technology, kind of like we're, we're the era of the Industrial Revolution. We have, since what, the late 80s, early 90s, have been in the, we saw the tech boom in the the beginning of the Internet, and then we've seen the the reemergence of the the tech boom with this explosion of of computerization and artificial intelligence. It's not going to be long uh, before we have that next boom, and it seems that these are coming quicker and quicker, especially with the ability to double and triple technology at a rate that we have not uh, seen before. And it, what do they say, every year you can double technology or double the the computing power and at some point you're going to reach a maximum I imagine but we're not far, I mean we're already seeing self-driving cars um, on the roads, we're seeing artificial intelligence and sex robots and all this crazy stuff that even 10 years ago you could not imagine would be here by now, so what is it going to look like in 10 more years and what level of control will those uh, advancements end up exerting over our society and over our freedoms. Total control. Yeah. To- total control. Joe, what we're entering is the era of big data. And we have built this surveillance grid willingly around us with our little social media devices. It will be the era of big data. It will be uh, under the purview of artificial intelligence. And it will ultimately be the biblical era of beast tech. Yes, it will. And when we, uh, I want to hit this uh, Facebook censors picture of Jesus as uh, shocking or sensationalist or violent. I'm sure many people saw this from Sunday. There was somebody who tried to, a Catholic university posted a picture of Jesus on the cross and it was banned or censored because they said the image was too violent. Uh, We could do a whole three hours plus on the dangers of social media companies today as they're ever increasing and changing. But when we come back, we'll talk with Floyd Brown who is uh, an expert in media. Stay tuned. Welcome back to our second segment. On this Tuesday edition, we're going to be joined, as I said, by media expert Floyd Brown. This guy's got a lifetime of political and media involvement from being a political appointee in the Reagan campaigns to the Bush campaign. He also worked for uh, the Dole and Forbes presidential campaign and to his current role as president of the Western Center for Journalism, also CEO of USA Network. And uh, the Western Journal has such an impact on the media as it is a news company that drives positive cultural change by equipping 
Readers with the Truth each day. WesternJournal.com publishes conservative, libertarian, free market, and pro-family writers and broadcasts. Uh, they have a huge amount of traction. Nearly 10 million unique visitors read WesternJournal.com monthly, putting the site securely among the top 200 most visited websites in the United States, that according to Alexa. And uh, Floyd has a, a, his own very interesting background. He was a radio show host from 1995 till 2000 in the Seattle uh, 570 AM, and uh, he has a whole uh, just uh, a great background of media, political affiliations, political campaigns, and so much more. And we're going to talk about the importance of not only the alternative media and the battles that we're facing today to what we see going on in the mainstream media with the lies and the you know constant reassuring that they are telling us the truth and that only they can tell us the truth. With that, we have our guest, Mr. Floyd Brown. Mr. Brown, welcome to the Hagman Report. Ah, uh, it's great to be with you. It's, uh, it's great it's, to uh, have you. It's, it's good to uh, be at a forum where we can actually get a little bit of truth out rather than this uh, kind of thought control that uh, we get from the mainstream media. You're absolutely right. We were just going through your background, and uh, you're a political and media expert, and we were talking, going over the, the stats of the uh, Western I, Journal. I, I never like to be called an expert. I'm an activist. Okay. 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 Uh, <laughs> do I have a little bit of expertise from along the way? Yes, but uh, really in my heart of hearts, I'm an activist. Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's jump right in uh, to what's going on in the media. I was just, we were just going over some of the statistics for WesternJournal.com as it's one of the most highly visited news sites. Uh, according to Alexa, uh, and how can, how are you doing that in this day and age with your you know pro family, uh, pro constitutionalist approach? When we see this constant attack from the mainstream media against all these things and platforms who are putting this kind of content out? Well, with uh, zero help from the big tech companies, I can tell you that uh, the truth is is that uh, what we do is we're engaged in a constant battle against big tech to try and uh, get the truth out. Uh, I talked to uh, my friends at other alternative media publications, people like Larry Zoloff at, over at, uh, at uh, Breitbart and, uh, and others, and what we like to euphemistically call it is the media wars because it's a daily war. It's a daily battle. We get up every day and we say to ourselves, we're going to put on the armor of truth and we're going to go into the battlefield and we're going to do the best we can to get quality information, verified information, and good facts out to the American people, because I honestly believe that if we give the American people good information, they're going to make great decisions. And But the key is, 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 is you've you got to give them the good information, and uh, that's very, very difficult in this uh, politically correct, thought-controlled world. Yes, it is. And, and Floyd, uh, I didn't get a chance to do this in the first segment of news, but Eric, if you want to throw up that Google search page, uh, and th- there's an example of this, the story about Amazon. Uh, we've seen the president attack Amazon as they seem to be getting uh, subsidies from the government in the form of every package that the U.S. Postal Service delivers. A dollar forty-six of that, uh, they don't pay, and that's basically a subsidy. Now, I don't know if you can see that page, but at the top you have articles saying how this is true from the Washington Examiner to Wall Street Journal and then you have underneath that you know the sites like Snopes and PolitiFact saying that these uh, claims are false and not true 
How do the American people find the truth when they're being given two completely different and opposing uh, sets of, uh, of facts based upon political ideology? Well, I think that the truth is is that if you listen to Snopes and you listen to PolitiFact and you listen to all of uh, the, the SPLC and these other groups that claim to be experts, uh, you're going to get biased information because those various groups are funded by big tech for the purpose of being an echo chamber to the beliefs of big, che- big tech. So, um, you know, I like to say you become a leftist by osmosis in America. If you just drink in what ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, if you just drink in what Time Magazine and these others uh, give you, you will literally become a liberal by osmosis. In order to be a free person and someone that thinks for themselves, you have to walk a different path. And that different path includes reading publications like... Uh, WesternJournal.com. It, it, it means uh, you know uh, going to the Hagman Report. It means uh, seeking out different information that 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 allows you to 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 process things and and really get to the bottom of the facts. I, I've looked into this whole Amazon question myself, and it's it's clear. Literally hundreds of millions of dollars of subsidies are subsidizing the. Uh, U.S. Postal Service, and the U.S. Postal Service, I think, has become the largest deliverer of Amazon packages, and they're, they're, they are, in essence, uh, being subsidized by the federal government through this Postal Service. I mean, if they want to end the subsidies, then what Amazon ought to do is step up and say, you know what, we're going to take all these health care liabilities, we're going to take all of these uh, uh Gigantic pension liabilities, and we're going to we're going to embrace those, and we're going to become the owner of the U.S. Postal Service. That would be a solution to the problem. But uh, the president is absolutely correct. As it stands right now, every time they deliver an Amazon package, you as a taxpayer are having to reach into your wallet and spend something like a dollar fifty just to uh, deliver that package in, uh, in 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 subsidies to Amazon, and it's a disgrace that a company like that is that deep into the government's pocket. Well, uh, our guest for those joining us uh, a little bit later here this evening is Floyd Brown, and we are just so pleased and blessed uh, to have Mr. Brown with us for this half-hour segment. Uh, Among other things, uh, my goodness, the Western Journal, uh, founding chairman of Citizens United. He's worked on a number of uh, presidential elections, as Joe mentioned a moment ago. Uh, Floyd, John Robertson sitting in this evening for Doug Hagman. And I am, Floyd, admittedly a, a, a history nerd in capital letters. And in looking through your bio and looking through all your, your amazing bona fides uh, prior to the show, I was, it definitely piqued my interest that you, sir, were involved in bare knuckle politics years ago before we had terms like virtue signaling and identity politics and even race baiting uh if you would be so kind to take a moment or two and tell our listeners and viewers let's go back for a moment to 1988 uh George H W Bush is running against Michael Dukakis and there was a very infamous ad that came out and many of our listeners will remember the Willie Horton ad that was a slam on then governor Dukakis's uh, furlough program for those who are incarcerated in his state. And uh, if you would just uh, humor me, uh, uh, Mr. Brown, 
Uh, tell us a little bit about that 1988 campaign and what I would what I would look at as the beginning of the virtue signaling and the identity politics that we see every day today. Well, you know, I was a young activist uh, in the in the uh, in the 80s. Uh, I met Ronald Reagan when I was 15 back in 1976, and that literally is the event that I point to is is a life changing event. When I met uh, then candidate Reagan, I, I, I was I was you know convinced I was convinced that uh, his ideas would be great for America, free enterprise, freedom of thought, um, strong national defense. So we were fighting the communists then. It was the Cold War. We needed to stand up to uh, to the threat of uh, of communist aggression. And so so I became an early adoptee of, of Reaganism. And uh, and that's kind of what has animated those same ideas. Uh, continue to animate my politics right up to this day. Um, when uh, President Reagan was retiring, uh, you know, it was a very very tough race between George H. W. Bush uh, and uh, who was then Vice President Ronald Reagan's Vice President and Governor Michael Dukakis of of, of Massachusetts. And Dukakis had this cockamamie program where he allowed first degree murderers and other felons weekend passes from prison where they would go out and spend the weekend uh, basically uh, out and about you know uh, doing what they wanted to do well one by the name of Willie Horton uh, on his uh, weekend pass from Dukakis uh, uh, he actually uh, kidnapped a woman and uh, actually a couple and he kidnapped the couple and he repeatedly raped and violated the woman and uh, and this is the kind of activities that you were getting from these weekend passes. This was a brutal man to begin with. He was serving time in prison for murdering a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times and uh, so uh, Dukakis embraced that program Dukakis supported the program and uh, you know we just did a, a very fact based um Add about it, and at the time it, it did get a lot of attention because it really moved the poll numbers. And uh, when we started broadcasting that ad, uh, George H. W. Bush was behind. And by the time we pulled it from the air, a little bit after uh, uh, Labor Day, he was he was then leading in the poll. So it had a had a big impact in the race, and and uh, I'm very uh, I'm very happy we did it. Uh, I think the country's better off because. Uh, Dukakis wasn't president. We probably would have slid deeper more quickly if he had been president. Um, but uh, 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 the truth is, is that uh, it was a great ad, and I stand by it to this day. Yeah, and that's some uh, awesome. And by the way, it's on YouTube. If you wanna, if you wanna, if you wanna watch it, you can you can find it on YouTube. Okay. Uh, it's it's the kind of ad that we really should have today because it was very factual and it was it was very matter of fact. And uh, and and I wish we had more advertisements like that. People need the facts. People need to know the information. I have tremendous confidence in the American people. If they have the facts, they're going to make good decisions. And that's what we were trying to do in that race. Yeah, and that provides an excellent insight uh, into the, uh, some of the mindset. And you had a front row seat to to these political campaigns and movements. And I want to ask you this: the division, the hatred that we see, the political divide that we see today seems to be so different from 
uh, and I wasn't even alive back then, but from everything I can tell, we seem to be a much more divided country today. Is that true? And do you think that there's a way that the political divide can be, um, we can bridge that gap? I think that the, that the country is uh, more divided today than it probably was in the 1980s, but there have been times when this country's been divided in the past. I mean, if you look back to the Civil War and and, and other great difficulties that we had, the Great Depression, there, there have been periods of, of division in the country. Um, but we always came back together around the central theme of America, which is providing the maximum amount of freedom to our citizens. And, and that's what's kept us so robust and, and such a wonderful country. And the notion, I mean, Ronald Reagan said every generation has to basically win freedom again on their own. Every generation has threats to freedom. Uh, every uh, generation has to, to to confront those. And this generation is, is like all others, it has some very serious threats to freedom that they're facing right now. And those threats are around the whole idea of collectivism, and whether or not we're going to go, you know, the way of these other countries that, you know, have rejected free enterprise and are basically socialist governments where you have government-run health care and you have, uh, you know, government-run welfare programs from cradle to grave and that you slowly, you know, bleed the, the wealth of the country in order to, 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 to hand out goodies to select political groups. And, uh, you know, America's always rejected that vision, and uh, I think we'll continue to be a robust, wonderful country as long as we continue to reject that vision. But if we if we change our our stripes and and embrace socialism, which is what Obama basically did, it's what Hillary Clinton wanted to do, and it's what Donald Trump kept us from doing, then I think we'll be okay. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the only problem I have with the the difference maybe from then and today is that we see this rabid mainstream media with the socialist, with the communist agenda, promoting it as though it's a good thing. And then on the other side of it, you have many of the churches falling into the trap of, of buying into these uh, deceptions as well. And it seems that I'm afraid that the divide might, the divide might be too great at, at this point. And then there's another troubling aspect with the media uh, that we're well, seeing. What, what you're... What, what you know, what I finally figured out is that at this heart, it's, it's spiritual warfare. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay? Uh, it, it has to do with forces that are even unseen. Um, we're in a spiritual battle. I mean, the Bible talks about this uh, in extensive detail, and, and, and I think to neglect the, the value of Scripture, which is something we're doing in the public square right now, is to not understand the complete picture of the kind of forces and difficulties that we face. And uh, so, you know, America is exactly a very right. special special country with a very special heritage, and uh, and that's why, I mean, that's why I get up every day is to, is to fight to make that heritage continue for my grandchildren, and uh, hopefully it will be as great of a country to them as it's been to me and, and, and to uh, my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Yeah, and we, we all hope the same thing. And we've been spending so much time each day talking about that, that spiritual battle, that being at the very core of this 
and uh, why uh, th- this is why we see such this great divide. And this is also why you'll never see the mainstream media, uh, you know, promote Jesus or Christianity. Instead, they mock and ridicule it as we see what it is that they do promote. And another troubling aspect of what because we're because uh, I'll just say it because that is the ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. You see, that's that's truth with a capital T. Amen. And you know they don't want to have to come to terms with a a living um, God that you know has a standard of justice to which all will repair it someday. And uh, yeah, I'm very comfortable with that. And uh, the ideas of America are very comfortable with that because we were founded on these Christian ideas that really permeated Western civilization. And so, um, you know, the Constitution was animated by biblical truth. The Declaration of Independence was animated by by biblical truth. And and until you understand that, uh, it's hard to even wrap your mind around why America's been so successful. You know, Mr. Brown, what you said is so true, and it's so easy to forget as we go about our day-to-day in the midst of such blessing, of such anointing. And I would even submit to you, sir, with the equity built by the generations that preceded us. I think of my grandparents, the Depression-era, World War II generation. But I'd like to ask you a question about this this media circus that we've seen since the uh, horror show of February 14th at uh, Parkland in Broward County. We have a number of writers who contribute original content to HagmanReport.com, one of whom, uh, Bill Chapman, uh, an, a Hollywood expat like myself, he wrote an article today, uh, Mr. Floyd, or Mr. Brown rather, uh, Sounds Like Teen Brains. And I'll give you just the first piece of this. Uh, uh, Bill Chapman writes, Margaret Mead, a famous anthropologist, once said, quote, children should be taught how to think, not what to think, end quote. In the 1930s, Adolf Hitler utilized the young people of Germany as propaganda puppets in order to communicate his vision for Germany. Would you say, uh, Mr. Brown, that what we're seeing with David Hogg and his ilk is a playbook right out of the uh, Hitlerian Joseph Goebbels propaganda machine of the 1930s? And if so, uh, how do we go about recognizing it and pushing back when we are currently in an atmosphere where if you so much as challenge Mr. Hogg, young Mr. Hogg's half-baked ideas, they scrub your account from YouTube, they shut you down off Twitter, and they basically tell you to shut up? Yeah, no, they, they, they do, and they have such complete and total control of these uh, technologies. Uh, it, wow, you, that the question you just gave me really goes right to the heart of it. And, and, the, and the truth is, is absolutely, is it a propaganda ploy? Yes, it's right out of Goebbels' playbook, uh, number one. Uh, and number two, why it's so dangerous is because... Uh, they want to silence people so completely and 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 so swiftly, uh, and and they they don't want to allow for freedom of expression and freedom of debate. I mean, I, you know, there, there's always been wacky ideas in America. I mean, you go back to the last century. You know, you had the uh, the Oneida uh, the Oneida. Um, Commune where you know people went off into upstate New York and and started a commune. I mean we we've always had these different splinter groups that 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 do wacky things. 
But now what you have is you have a kind of a, a, a really hard left coterie that is dedicated to silencing those of us that really have mainstream ideas. I mean, the idea of embracing the Constitution of the United States, to me, that's extremely mainstream. I mean, that's the Constitution. That, that's, that's the document that was written by our founders that govern our country, okay? Now, we embrace the Bill of Rights. We embrace the First Amendment. We embrace the Second Amendment. We embrace all the amendments. And to, to somehow silence people that, that believe in those traditional values, that's, that's wrong and it's dangerous. But at a certain point, um, uh, Congress needs to step in and step up and say, you know, we're, to these, these huge technology companies, okay, well, you know, Amazon, if you want all these subsidies and, and, and you want to, you know, run this unregistered lobbyist called the Washington Post, and uh, if you want all these different benefits, then then you're going to have to open up your platforms to to everybody, like a common carrier. Um, or Facebook, you know, they're going to have to say to Facebook, okay, yeah, Facebook, uh, uh, you, you've got all of these special protections whereby... Uh, you're not you're protected from um, you know the, the content placed there by your users. If you're going to have that special protection, then you need to open up your platform so that mainstream ideas that aren't monolithic, like those of you that live in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley have, then then um, then you need to you need to to, to um, allow that and um, uh, or then the government needs to just step in and break them up and and uh, and not allow them to have that much power. You can't allow one company to deliver over 50% of all news in the country like Facebook does and and have that kind of unchecked without uh, somebody stepping in and, 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 and regulating that. I'm not a big believer in government regulation, but these companies are too large they're too powerful. They have too much uh, information and data on people, and uh, there's only one place you can go for redress, and that's the U.S. government. Yeah, and I agree. You know, we don't want the less government intervention, the better. Uh, but as you said earlier, you know, Amazon, uh, if they were to you know jump in with both feet, taking over the post office, they're already in trouble for these antitrust uh, possible antitrust violations, and that would put them, uh, you know, in front and center. As well, but there, something does need to be done for the uh, to keep things fair on the internet. When you have well, uh, the content, it's, ISIS it's, content allowed, but you know, conservative yeah, constitutions, I, no, you can't have that. Yeah, you know, a a a free country depends upon the free and open exchange of ideas. Since the last algorithm change, the ability of Donald Trump to meet, reach people on Facebook has gone down forty percent. Okay. He's the elected president of the United States, and now Mark Zuckerberg is saying, I'm not going to allow Donald Trump, the president, to communicate to the people that follow him on Facebook. I mean, how absurd is that? Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's ridiculous. And then you have what uh, James O'Keefe uncovered from Twitter, from the uh, 
stealing deleted messages from people's accounts. They can see what the president wrote and then deleted. Uh, they can see what the stuff that he didn't send. And that's the president of the United States. And they can do this with all the other users. And then the, the files they use for uh, information selling and whatnot and who's cheating on their wives. It's really uh, terrible what, what has these social media companies have turned into, especially with the level of control that they have. Uh, we only have uh, just a, a minute and a half left. Floyd, I want to ask you this. What are some of the most important stories in the media today? We have, we're just bombarded constantly with news and information, and uh, I believe you know President Trump's only one man. He does need the support of, of all his supporters. Uh, he's not going to be able to make these changes alone. But what are some of the stories uh, today that you would say are, are some of the most important to focus on? Well, the stories that I'm following closely, number one is the one we talked about, which is the ability of big tech to silence Mm -hmm. uh, people on the right. I mean, that's that's a story I'm watching very closely. Uh, Another story I'm watching very closely is is these Central Americans that are marching towards our border. Uh, The you know, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. And if America is going to be a continuing country, we have to get control over who comes in and out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a country if you don't have a border. That's another big story that, uh, that I'm watching. Um, you know, these elections coming up, uh, are going to be very, very intense. And, um, it's really important for the president to continue to have uh, at least some modicum of support on Capitol Hill, and uh, you yeah. know, with all of the Democrats against him, at least a third to half of the Republicans against him, he needs some more friends out there. Yes, he does. Uh, Floyd Brown, thank you for so much for joining us. We'd love to have you back, folks. Go to WesternJournal.com and bookmark the site. It's a great site. We post stuff almost daily from there up on Hagman Report. And we're so happy you joined us, Floyd. Again, we'd love to have you back. That was too short of a time, but thank you. We'll be right back after this with Stephen Menking. Don't go anywhere. edition of the Hagman Report on this Tuesday, April 3rd. We're going to be joined by Stephen Menking, and he is a regular guest of the show, also a regular guest on Wednesdays on the Hagman Daily Show, where we cover a number of issues. Uh, he also posts his, his podcast on Hagman Report on a, a regular basis, and you can go there and find all his port, reports from the Amateur Society or go to ontheobjective.com. We're going to bring him on in just a moment, but John's got a quick update from a guest and a friend of the show uh, that you guys helped get into the Marines. Bill McIntosh's son uh, came on the show and talked about his dreams and goals for entering the Marines, and John, you have an update. Well, thank you, Joe. Indeed, I do, and I just want to start by thanking uh, all of our listeners and our viewers. Uh, we don't ask you to stand in the gap or to help pull weight financially too often because believe me around here we're mindful uh that uh that a buck's a buck and we try to conserve every dollar that we can and we make it a mission it's an actual mission statement on joe's desk on mine doug's our production manager tech eric to get as many uh dimes and quarters of production value on the screen as possible for every dollar that we spend but uh twice uh over the past several months you folks have really stepped up and helped the first being 
uh, Christian Saucier, who was just on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I want to make it clear, Hagman Report listeners, you stepped in and put groceries in the refrigerator and helped that family keep their home. When I talked to his wife, Sadie, a couple days later, she was in tears thanking all of you for helping a vet who was then rightfully pardoned by President Donald J. Trump. Now, the other one, and, and Joe, I don't know how, I always get blessed with being on air the nights that these happen, but the other one is an unsung hero, a very important member of the Hagman Report, and that's, of course, our friend and publicist down in Peru, Mr. Bill McIntosh of Ocaso Media. Now, for our regular listeners and viewers, Bill has furnished guests, uh, everyone from who we just heard from, Mr. Floyd Brown from the Western Journal, to Frank Serpico, uh, Joe Pistone, the movie Donnie Brasco, and tons of great guests in between. And his son, Nicholas, who was born in the United States, moved down to Peru after his biological mother died of, of cancer. And it was a very sudden tragedy to the, the McIntosh family. He aspired to become a United States Marine. A couple of months ago, we had Nick and his father, Nick McIntosh and Bill McIntosh, on the program. And we we did a little ask. We we asked the listeners and viewers if they would mind helping out, putting a few bucks in in uh, Nick's pocket so he could relocate from Peru back up to Florida and see a Marine recruiter. And that's where the story was left off. Well, I'm very pleased to update all of you this evening that Nick McIntosh is in Florida. It is with your help. It's your love that helped get him on a plane and back into the United States, bring the kid back home. He has met with a United States Marine recruiter. He has been accepted into the United States Marine Corps. He is still doing his pull-ups, and you can see them on the screen there. Now, that's Nick in the recruiter's office uh, doing pull-ups for the recruiter. And uh, he's he's currently living in a, a little one-bedroom and, and waiting to get started at Paris Island. Uh, if you'd like to, an update on Nick's story or if you'd like to uh, help out a little bit, all you've got to do is go to helpafuturemarine.com. That's helpafuturemarine.com. And we, Joe, we're, we're looking forward one day to having Nicholas McIntosh uh, join us on the Hagman Report in those really, in those cool class A's that the Marines wear. So, yeah, it's pretty, great, pretty cool. <laughs> it's a, it is a great story. And, uh, and, and thanks to our, our, as you said, the generous and wonderful audience out there that are able to make so many things happen for people from, uh, Kristen Saucier to, uh, you know, helping him get to, uh, in, in the Marines. And that was, uh, something that Bill, uh, was really, you know, uh, asking for help because they, yeah, this was a dream that his son had, and, and you guys were there to make it happen. Uh, I just want to throw this out there, and then we're going to bring our guest Stephen Menking on. University event aims to combat Christian privilege. We've heard about white privilege, but now Christian privilege. This is at George Washington University. Just four days after Easter, George Washington University will be hosting a training session for students and faculty that teaches that Christians, especially the white ones, receive unmerited perks from institutions and systems all across our country. The April 5th Diversity Workshop is titled Christian Privilege, but our founding fathers were all Christian, right? Hosted by the university's Multicultural Student Services Center, the event will teach that Christians enjoy privileged, easier life than their non-Christian counterparts, which pose built-in advantages according to online descriptions. You can read the rest. It's at the collegefix.com if you want. But I mean, come on. This is just, they, they, they 
constantly. It never ceases to amaze me uh, what these people think of next. But with that, let's bring on our next guest from OnTheObjective.com, Stephen Menking. Uh, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me again, John, Joe. It's a pleasure to be back here with the audience. As I was listening to your remarks, Joe, about Christian privilege, it occurs to me that Christians do have privilege. We have the ability to come before our Father in heaven, but the interesting thing about Christian privilege is that anyone can become a Christian. It doesn't matter your right. background, your, stat- your status, your family history, your ethnicity, your race, your lifestyle, anything else. Once we drop everything of our own plans and our own ambitions and we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we get to attain to that ultimate privilege, the free gift of eternal life and salvation. And so I would encourage anyone, if they are a little bit dismayed by this kind of article or this kind of news, it's worth reflecting on the privileges that we have with God in that our prayers are heard. Uh, and to note that this comes along with the additional burden of having to care for what is going on out there in terms of the eternal souls of people. We don't have the luxury of just turning things off. We have to use our quote-unquote privilege in order to reach out, to save, to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And so let's exercise one of the privileges we have with the almighty creator of the universe and come before him in prayer. Amen. Father, go ahead, Jim. No, sorry. Go ahead, Stephen. No, it's all right. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace, Lord. You have bestowed upon us unmerited favor. Jesus, you died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins when we were yet sinners, Lord. And so we do consider ourselves blessed and privileged, Lord, that we come before you. And we come before you with a humble hearts, knowing, Lord, that in so many different ways we have dropped the ball, we have failed, we have fallen short of the glory of God, Lord, and of the meaningful burden that you have placed upon us. Your burden is light and your yoke is easy, Jesus, but you give us a vision, you give us discernment, you give us perspective that we look around and see the world that you have placed us in and that you've called us into. And we thank you, God, that we can rely on you for the spiritual strength and the faith that is necessary for us to continue to stand, to continue to speak, to continue to give every last ounce of the strength that you will give us, knowing Father, that you are more than able, ready, willing, and even joyously prepared to pour out even more of your Holy Spirit into us, Lord. So we pray that you would station angels around us, that you would bless the Hagman Report and all of those listening, Lord, that they would receive a touch from your Holy Spirit tonight, that they would feel your presence and your love, and that they would know and experience a relationship with you. For all those who do not know you, As Lord and Savior Jesus, we pray that today would be the day of salvation and that we would know uh, you as Lord and that righteousness would be restored to our nation, God. We need your strength. We need the faith that only you can give us to stand in this hour, but we are proud to do so and we are prepared to give everything for you, Lord. We just bless you and praise you and we thank you for this opportunity, asking in your name, Jesus, that what we speak exclusively would be edifying to you and would bear fruit for your heavenly kingdom in your precious name. Amen. 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 And uh, it's a perfect place to start tonight, Stephen. We opened the show talking about the spiritual warfare and how, first and foremost, everything that we're seeing is centered around a spiritual warfare, which is rarely or never um, identified as the source of all these problems. 
and you'll, you can't expect that from the, the mainstream media. And really, you, you only have very few in the alternative media who are presenting um, that side of the truth with the solution of you know salvation through your faith in Jesus. And we, we, we can't expect the, uh, the mainstream media that they're going to promote uh, Jesus. Instead, they're going to, to mock and ridicule. And on The Daily Show yesterday, and we didn't get to part two today. We're going to do that tomorrow before you come on. But we revisited the teachings or the vision of the 1973 vision of Pastor David Wilkerson, of who was the pastor and founder of the church which you attend today. And we talked about how all these um, uh, things are happening from 35 years ago when he had that vision and, and gave his testimony and how so much of what he said is really coming true. And how another 35 years, uh, I don't think we have that left at the pace we're seeing things moving today. How can we better get the message of this uh, spiritual battle? How can we uh, better help people understand what they are engaging in? Uh, because no other outlet is really doing that. It's an excellent question, uh, Joe. And unfortunately, my best response at this moment is to quote Mike Tyson, believe it or not, and that is everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So unfortunately, it seems to me that it's going to take a dramatic confrontation with the reality of this spiritual battle and an exhaustion of the strength that we have in our own plans and the reliance that we have on our own ambitions in order for us to really get the picture. Now, there are a couple different things that need to take place because this is going to be a sequential operation if we are going to see righteousness restored and a return to justice in this land because this is seeped through to the very core of things like virtue and right and wrong and true and false to the point where everything is up for grabs now and we've discussed this idea of postmodern relativism in various broadcasts before, but I'd like to read an excerpt from something, and I would appreciate it if you gentlemen could offer me your thoughts on how this reflects the current situation and perhaps at what time it was written. And the hint is I've read it before, but, you know, that's uh, that's going back into the archives a little bit. So here's here's a couple of things to chew on, and it's worth paying close attention to the writing here. The subjects to which I would ask each of my readers to devote his earnest attention are these. The life and morals of the community, the men and the qualities by which, through domestic policy and foreign war, dominion was won and extended. Then, as the standard of morality gradually lowers, let him follow the decay of the national character, observing how, at first, it slowly sinks, then slips downward more and more rapidly, and finally begins to plunge into headlong ruin until he reaches these days in which we can bear neither our diseases nor their remedies. There is this exceptionally beneficial and fruitful advantage to be derived from the study of the past that you see set in the clear light of historical truth examples of every possible type. From these, you may select for yourself and your country what to imitate and also what as being mischievous in its inception and disastrous in its issues, you are to avoid. Unless, however, I am misled by affection for my undertaking, there has never existed any commonwealth greater in power, with a purer morality, or more fertile and good examples, or any state in which avarice and luxury have been so late in making their inroads, or poverty and frugality so highly and continuously honored, 
showing so clearly that the less wealth men possessed, the less they coveted. In these latter years, wealth has brought avarice in its train, and the unlimited command of pleasure has created in men a passion for ruining themselves and everything else through self-indulgence and licentiousness. Gentlemen, care to give me a guess as to when that passage was written and what it's about? I would say... Ooh. If I had to guess... I'll, I'll give you the Jeopardy theme, but what do you think? I'd say uh, 1870. John? I'm liking the end of the 18th century. I'm thinking Benjamin Franklin. All right, this is Titius Livius, better known as Livy, in his History of Rome preface. This was written when Jesus Christ was alive. Wow, okay. About the Roman Empire. And so the point that I want to make is that this maps onto the current empires, the current failings, the current dissemination of character. But little did Livy know, a few hundred miles away from Rome, the Savior was planning and living out a life that would create a remedy for situations such as this. We find ourselves in a time period, gentlemen, where it seems difficult to bear our infirmities, and it's even difficult to bear the remedies for those infirmities, it seems. However, we serve a God of the impossible. We serve a God of miracles, a God who parts the Red Sea. And Lord knows that's what we need in our society, but it is going to take, gentlemen, a return to righteousness, and it's not going to begin at the at the top down. It's going to come from the bottom up. It's going to be bold men, women, and even young people, children even, to insist that there is a way, there is a truth. His name is Jesus Christ, and we have to walk in that truth. And so there are certain tools that we have at our disposal. The Word of God, prayer, fasting, we don't have to make some complex display of spiritual battle mechanics. If we would just get back to basics, gentlemen, I am firmly convinced that that would get us almost all the way there because the place we need to get back to is the throne room of God. We need to get back to the place where we are in the presence of the Lord so that he can pour into us, that we could get rid of ourselves and our old plans, and that we could be made new and transformed into the image of his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in these situations where I am so privileged and so thankful that I can stand and share a platform with gentlemen such as yourselves who have dedicated your your life's work to serving the Lord, to speaking the truth, to encouraging people who are in various states of, of disarray. You know, and, and I know that we all could spend hours and hours talking about testimonies that we've either heard or even our own personal um, dealings with how this platform and others like it have fed us and nourished us spiritually. And so in this situation, it's incredibly important to find the resources that are that are there. If people are able to make it to the conference in Canton in a couple weeks, that's a fantastic place um, to get to meet um, all of the Hagman crew. I'll be there as well, hanging out. And I'd also encourage people to check out um, Pastor Mike Spaulding's new book, it's called Make the Pulpit Great Again, and it's 12 Things That Christians Can Do Right Now. That's available on uh, on Amazon. Um, we'll see if that platform gets shut down or not. Probably not. We'll see how that goes. But it's, you can also go to SoaringEagleRadio.com or, or DrMikeSpalding.com. And in, in that book, we're talking about just the simple things. 
Um, we tend to make things extraordinarily complicated, but if we are going to save our society, it's not going to be us, it's going to be God, and that requires a turn, a full turn, a repentance, a 180 about face from coming up with our own plans, um, not not jettisoning our rational faculties and not getting rid of our capacity to be used, but to make a true surrender to the call that God has placed on our lives, because what God has called us for, he will equip us for. So that's the scenario that I see unfolding all around us, gentlemen. That's the, that's the meta level that's, that's operating above all of the, all of the bits and pieces and the back and forth and the division and the rancor and, and everything else. And so I would just, I wanted to make sure that I encourage the audience to, to stay focused on the Lord and to receive the spiritual nourishment that we need each and every day, each and every day. It feels like every hour these days, gentlemen. Indeed, it does. Uh, for those just joining us, our guest, regular guest, frequent guest uh, here on the Hagman Report is Stephen Menking. And Stephen himself is, an, is a, a very unique individual in our coterie of very fine guests. He was uh, the new Wall Street wunderkind at Morgan Stanley when he became a Christian four or five years ago and immediately found himself persona non grata on the street. And now he has a very... Um, a very viable and a vibrant uh, tutoring uh, company that he runs, and he's helping educate uh, the young people in his area. He and his wife live in New York City, and I was blessed to meet them uh, at a conference back in 2016. But Stephen, when you were reading that quote a moment ago, the word avarice uh, really stood out to me, and I'd like to share that word here at the Hagman Report. We always go back to basics. Words have meaning. Avarice uh, is noted by Funk and Wagnalls, funkandwagnalls.com, as a passion for riches, covetousness, cupidity. And Stephen, I agree with everything you just said, but I'd like to compliment your commentary, and then I'll hand it directly back to you. We are at a time right now where whatever would be considered the most antithetical to a humble spirit, I would submit that would be a prideful spirit, a spirit of covetousness, a passion for riches. Everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants to be famous. That's why those little thumbs up on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter mean the world to people. Until we can do that 180 you just spoke about, Stephen, and find ourselves in a new and I would say proper dynamic with the Lord, first there must come the humility inherent to a humble spirit. And I would take this a step further uh, with, again, our guest Stephen Minking because he's going to have an answer to this for sure. Stephen, things are going to change, and they are changing regardless of what anyone sitting in this studio thinks about it. And I'm thinking particularly of all of the ink that we've seen lately. I've got two articles in front of me, one from rtbusiness.com about the emerging Chinese uh, petro-backed yuan. Now, without going into a long history story, most of our listeners know that since 1973-74, the United States has been able to export our debt to every living person on the planet because we enjoy the unbelievable benefit of being the world reserve currency. In order to trade on this planet, you must trade in U.S. dollars, particularly for oil with the OPEC nations. That's the background. Here's what's coming next. China, unlike Libya, now remember, we went in and remember, we came, we saw, he died. That's uh, Gaddafi's recent uh, news in a nutshell. Why did we attack Libya? Because Libya was selling their oil 
in a precious metal-backed currency, and Libya, Stephen, lacked the one thing that China, in fact, has. And that, of course, is a global nuclear shield and a first-strike nuclear capacity. So I said at the, at the beginning of my remarks, things are changing right now. And in my humble opinion, Stephen, there, there will be a terrestrial financial shift that many who know the voice of the Good Shepherd will then hear that voice and there will thus be a spiritual shift. But I believe that some financial pain must come first. And in my opinion, being an untrained reader of many articles, not trained like Stephen Minking, I think that the pain could well come from the competition on the global market of a Chinese uh, petro-backed yuan. We need to remember that for five, almost six years now, uh, the BRICS nations have been building a financial superhighway to compete with the current singular monopolistic SWIFT payment system. And lastly, we saw as recently as 14 to 18 months ago the Baltic Dry Index plummet to a rate not seen in recent times where effectively global credit, Stephen, for a heartbeat froze and no product moved anywhere on the planet. So we're seeing all of these precursors, this foreshadowing to what I believe will be the financial instigator of the spiritual 180 of which you just spoke. I would agree with that assessment, and I think it's critically important that we point out a couple things just to preface the conversation so that we make sure that we're on solid footing here. Uh, number one, it is critically important that we avoid falling prey to the love of money, as the Bible says. It's an oft-quoted passage. Something that's a little less often quoted is the passage about the steward in, the unjust steward, I might add, in Luke 16. And the Bible, the Bible there makes an analogy here that is important for us to take into account says he in this is Luke 16 verse 10 he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much therefore if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will commit to your trust the true riches so the implication of this of this rhetorical question is that we have to be faithful and uh, stirred, studious and approaching proper stewardship in all things, and that means utilizing the resources that we've been given, spiritual, uh, emotional, psychological, cognitive, financial, um, and tactile, and everything, that we need to use these for the benefit of the kingdom of God in accordance with the call that the Holy Spirit places on our lives. And so this is the ultimate motif of, well, what's the, what's the most appropriate investment? Well, any investment that you can that you can get, any kind of finite return, pales in comparison to the infinite, eternal return of storing up treasures in heaven. And that isn't to say that you can buy indulgences or that you can do a one-to-one -one transfer. However, you can deploy your financial resources in such a way that you facilitate the spreading of the gospel, the preaching of the kingdom, and expanding people's awareness of the truth, and, and by even supporting uh, programs such as the Hagman Report, which is a ministry uh, for many, a ministry where truth is spoken and, and the Lord is lifted up. But as we as we understand those basic principles, and even that's another conversation in and of itself, when we look at the landscape, there has been a prevailing theme, a prevailing ethos that has been, all right, the the economy, uh, 
in in principle and in practice is a facade. It's a, it's an illusion. The paper wealth and the fiat currency and everything else that that is there's nothing really behind it. It's all uh, duct tape and uh, and cables and it's it's financial wizardry of a Babylonian sort. And fair enough, that assessment and that premise is valid. You can do endless amounts of research and figure out the history of the Federal Reserve and everything else like that. So the question is, well, what is the plan? And the plan that had been sniffed out by many people in the truth movement is that you can set up an economy for a crisis, and it's incredibly, you know, one or two buttons is all it would take to create a systemic crisis. And we saw a preview of this in 2008. And it's in those kind of events and those kind of crises that people will trade their liberty and willingly enter into a contract uh, that essentially enslaves them. And so the prevailing narrative has been for a while that, all right, we're going to see, we're going to see a collapse of the system and that's going to immediately lead either to total war or to totalitarian one world government uh, in the form of the book of revelation and in the end time prophecies. And that was dead set going to happen at X year, the next one, the next one, the next one, et cetera. And while I don't mean to downplay that scenario, it is worth thinking about the different ways that God might intervene and that God might act. Now, we can't put God in a box. We know that the prophecies will all come to pass, but we also know that the disciples who walked closest with Jesus and were told in extraordinarily plain language what was going to happen to him by Jesus himself, uh, the Bible says that they were prevented from understanding, their eyes were kept from seeing um, uh, what was going to come to pass. And Jesus stated that he was going to be crucified, he was going to die, and he was going to rise again. And he said it multiple times, over and over again, very close to the event. And so, from our understanding, it is certainly appropriate for us to study prophecy, but we also need to avoid the equivalent trap of fatalism that says that this is the only path that can happen because it's the only path that I can imagine or that I can see based on the research that I've done in this arena. And it, it takes, uh, it takes a broader, a broader scope and the willingness to engage alternate possibilities about what prophetic fulfillment would look like and everything else. It's, it, there are so many different gray areas here that when I read articles or I listen to people who comment about well, what's going to happen? What's the timeline? What are, what are we seeing? It is, in my view, a, a futile exercise, not because I don't want to be tied down about making predictions, but because even if I was right about the extrapolation of all of the current trends, that is liable to change on an event-driven basis day by day. I mean, we could wake up tomorrow and Deutsche Bank could be under, but that could have happened at any time in the last 20 years, and it hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean that it's not going to take place. I'm trying to say that human beings are really terrible at estimating risk, particularly estimating probabilities and risk for unlikely or unprecedented events. Unprecedented events are essentially as such because they couldn't possibly be foreseen if you're looking at historical patterns. And so that doesn't mean that the historical patterns don't apply. It just means that we have to be balanced and sober 
in our analysis. There is a, there's a great extent to which having uh, having a perspective about what's going to happen with the economic system and oh you know it's the mark it's the mark of the beast this that or the other thing that that provides a little bit of a of a, of a dopamine hit. We want to be right about these things and. Even if the patterns do persist in a way that validate what we're talking about, the exact fulfillment of these, whether we're talking about prophecy or about the unfolding of the balance of economic power, let's say, across the next five to ten years, it's it's going to, by definition, look slightly different than what everyone has thought. Even the people who are making the decisions in control of these outcomes uh, to, to a certain extent, they don't necessarily have an idea of what will happen once they make the decisions that they do. They could have an idea about what they want, but we're talking about systems that are so complex that the maneuvering of even one of the levers of the inputs can have feedback loops and, and temporal loops that make it essentially impossible to pin down with a great deal of specificity. That being said, we have to get back to first principles. And first principle one is to acknowledge the trends and to see what's taking place and then to examine the scenarios from, from A to Z. We have to consider all of the things. You know, is nuclear war on the table? Yes. I mean, you can't take it off the table given that the destructive capability is there. Is utopia on the table? Well, probably not because there's evil in men's hearts regardless of the economic circumstance. And so, you know, we're not going to social engineer ourselves into utopia. We can't, you know, see things uh, happening that go deliberately against the way that the word of God is constructed from start to finish. However, with the rise of the petroyuan, and the additional layers of alternative financial infrastructure that are challenging the dominance of the dollar. We may not overnight see a, a dollar collapse. We may not overnight see the importing of inflation and all of a sudden we have prices go up 1, 2, 5, 10x for day-to-day -day consumer goods. However, this system is extraordinarily fragile in the West and now that there is a, an alternative, a viable alternative for countries and even entire continents, then as the West is exposed as increasingly fragile, and if we see a financial collapse, the alternative here being constructed now and having been constructed already in terms of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Silk Road and all these other partnerships, it may not be the kind of global contagion leading to global totalitarian government that many have been predicting. It, it doesn't necessarily have to play out that way. It certainly could, but it's incumbent upon each and every one of us to pray that it doesn't. Frankly, gentlemen and audience members, we need more time. And I'm not just saying this because I'm 30 and I want to raise a family. Uh, we need more time. There are people who need to hear the gospel. We should be acting with a sense of urgency regardless of our expectation for the future because we're not promised tomorrow. Whether the world ends or not, you know, my, my world could end overnight, and I pray to God that it doesn't, and I believe that he's called me into, into other things, and so I still have a job to do. But it's in, it really is necessary for us to continue fervently in prayer and to avoid falling into the trap of fatalism that can befall many people who have been awakened and who've seen the truth about the way in which the governing and economic and financial structures of the world have functioned. 
throughout the course of their entire lifetimes. And fair enough. Fair enough. It's, uh, it's mind-bending and absolutely depressing in its capability of snuffing out the will and the drive that people have to secure liberty and to live a life of meaningful freedom that can be preserved for the next generation. It's, it's really, it's, it's a place, quite frankly, guys, of, uh, of fatalism and feeling overwhelmed by the circumstances of the world and the enemy that has arrayed himself against us that we all fall into from, from time to time. And we've all been there in the dark, in the dark nights of the soul when we're just like, man, it's all over. It's yeah. all over. And, and I just, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, go ahead. I, I just wanted to, uh, say this, you know, going back to what we opened with when you, in this hour, the Christian privilege story where they talked about receiving some kind of privilege for being Christians. And you said, yes, you know, you do get a, a privilege and that is the relationship with the Lord at the same time. Anybody can become a Christian. But they also say in the article that that privilege extends to all these advantages that, that Christians apparently have in society. But I want to ask you this, Stephen. We're told that all who believe in Christ Jesus shall, shall suffer persecution. We see the uh, the Christianity and Jesus constantly ridiculed and mocked and hated, all ac- not, not even in, just in American media anymore, but all across the world. And it is suppressed, uh, the most suppressed religion ever. And while at the same time they promote Islam, they promote, uh, you know, Buddhism and all this other stuff. And what, to people who have that, that attitude, see, the, as you said, the scripture lays out exactly what's going to happen, how this is going to play out. But that doesn't mean we have to be a fatal, have a fatalist mindset uh, about what our role is here on earth until that time. And in fact, there is so much that we could do uh, to be positive forces while all these terrible things are going on. But I want to ask you this. Um, do you think the average Christian today, and, and I'm not talking about people who listen to the show, just the average people who identify as Christian, uh, the, the church-going people, one, do you think that they have a good uh, fundamental knowledge of Scripture, either from their church or from their own reading of that? And two, do you think that most of the self-identified Christians are willing to pay uh, the, the price or any price for having their faith? Sadly, no. Not here. Not here in America. Not here. Yeah. And that's a that's a disaster. But it should also be a sign of encouragement that when darkness comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against it. And this is happening in nominal churches right now, where there are doctrines that are being followed that are not just non-biblical, they're deliberately anti-biblical. And this is happening even in places of higher education and and seminaries and and Bible colleges where the Bible is not treated seriously or the level at which it's treated is as a document to be deconstructed. And this is all based on this underlying uh, current of postmodernism and textual interpretation and higher criticism and all this. And you can dress up the academic speak and the heuristics and everything any way that you want. The real question is, where is the power? The power of the gospel transforms lives. It takes people out of places that you wouldn't even want to imagine are possible. 
and places them into a scenario where they are capable of forgiveness and of staring evil in the face and of just shouting for joy about the deliverance that God has given them and people who are bold in their testimonies towards others. And so, you know, privilege, to the extent that we're talking about it, if we're analyzing it through a cultural vein, there are always going to be, roughly speaking, uh, benefits and privileges from being a member of the prevailing, of the prevailing culture. And this applies at any different level of analysis that you want in any different place at any different time. However, what we do have to understand is that there are many places where the prevailing culture is not Christian and the Spirit of God is moving in such a way that people are being converted and willing to stand and hazard their lives, not just because Jesus instructed us to do that. He who saves his life will lose it, and he who will lose his life for my sake will save it. And it's not just that, it's this real living power, this real testimony of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It's not just some emotional crutch. It's not just to deal with the fear of death. It's not just an opiate for the masses. It's not just some set of rituals. It's not just a religious practice. It's not just a social club. It's not just showing up and being buddy-buddy and eating some food. We are talking about suiting up, and getting ready and being equipped to speak in the face of darkness and of hell itself and to say no more and no further. And this is not a level of analysis. This is not a life that most people um, are ready to lead yet. And it's in part because of failed leadership. It's in part because of the background uh, ideology of our society and our culture. It's in part because of various intellectual and scientific, not scientific, but scientific threads that have gone through our epistemology and an ignorance of the reformed epistemology that defeats those kind of principles. But it comes down to this, whether, you know, whether you're operating at the PhD level or you're just swinging a hammer and there's nothing wrong with swinging a hammer. I guarantee you that it keeps you out of so many different subtle traps that the enemy has for you. The point is that if you stand and you're willing, you're willing to go where God would send you. He might not send you all the way across the world. He might send you next door. He might send you into the other room in your own house where we need to get things straightened out. And by that, I mean demonstrate the love of Christ, demonstrate forgiveness, demonstrate healing. Can any can anyone in the audience think of someone who they need to forgive for something right now? Probably yes. I think we all can. Yeah, we certainly can. All right, let's all of us do that. We got we got a few hundred thousand people who are gonna who are gonna hear this. I don't, you know, we don't need to go into the specifics. But if each if each one of us went out deliberately and said, I, you know, whatever the Holy Spirit put on my heart, whoever I need to forgive, whatever relationship I need to mend, I'm going to do it, um, and I'm going to put my own pride to the side, and I'm going to take care of that one thing. When am I going to do it? Tomorrow or tonight, if need be, that would make the world a better place in a really meaningful way because it would give us additional confidence in the power of God. It would strengthen our faith. It would bring healing and facilitate that because we're all kind of just waiting around on a miracle cure, and God does do miracles and performs miraculous restorations and resurrections and all of these deliverances, and praise God for it. 
But where are we? What are we doing? I would posit that it's not enough. Whatever we're doing, we can do more. And it starts with the little things. It starts with the basics. And we don't even have those right. And so it's it would be inappropriate for us to expect, uh, you know, to just twiddle our thumbs on the side and say, okay, well, you know, it's all, it's all going to work out or it's all going down anyway. You know, even if this is the Titanic, what are you going to do about it? People lived. People lived. Not everybody died from the Titanic, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a scenario where whether God calls our, calls our name overnight tonight or we get another couple generations or who knows, that is up to the Lord. And I am willing to be positioned wherever he would have me go and to speak whatever he would have me speak, whether we're talking about educating about economic subjects and different things like that, or talking about these basic spiritual truths. When I was, when I was getting red-pilled, quote-unquote, and reading up on all this stuff, I consumed voracious amounts of books and lectures and information and everything else like that. And I thought, man, look at all this body of work that's been done. How could I ever make a difference like there's nothing new that i can bring to the table other people are way better at that than i am but then i realized that it wasn't my responsibility to invent something new for myself to present all i had to do was be obedient to the word of god and that would work itself out and so it's not a cop-out it's not kicking it up to the next level it's not like saying all right well someone else or something else will take care of it it's entering into a willing partnership that says what I want and what I need for my life is not what my own strength and reasoning will concoct in my own ambition. What I really need, what I deeply, truly need is what God wants for me because the word of God is faithful. The word of God is true and the word of God is Jesus Christ. And he is waiting. He has his hand outstretched. He's knocking on your heart right now. He wants to equip you. He wants to call you. He wants to put you in a position to save others and to point others towards him. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit, and today is the day of salvation. And you can play a part in that. You can bear eternal fruit. That is what will give our lives meaning. So if we are in a situation, Joe, John, and everyone, where we look around at our country and we imagine things can't get any crazier than this. Wait a oh, wait yeah, an hour can. and a half, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's not gonna it's not gonna take that long. With all the information, we get all these different reports. Yeah, there's bias. Yeah, there's this tumult. Yeah, all of that stuff. Let's keep our eyes focused on the Lord. That doesn't mean we ignore these things. We stay informed. We stay aware. We stay abreast of the situations. But our primary spiritual guidance, our primary central philosophy has to be the word of God and its veracity, its truth, and its power. If people see the power of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the strength of God, the faithfulness of God in our lives, it will so contrast with what this world has to offer that it will create inside of the people around us a hunger for the things of God and a thirst for truth and righteousness that we can't even begin to understand because there is something in the depths of each and every one of our souls because we are created in the image of God that cries out 
ceaselessly, endlessly, this groaning that can't even be uttered through the utterances of the Holy Spirit that insists upon this restoration that will never be satisfied and we clog it full of everything that this world has to offer and it doesn't even begin to fill one drop of that gap. And so if we see people around us with the transformed lives, one of the one of the things that the current pastor of Times Square Church, Pastor Carter Conlon, says is that you will be the only Bible that some people ever read. Let's take that invective seriously. We have to be representing Christ the way that he deserves to be represented. And Lord knows we fall short of that. Yeah. For, for, for plenty of us, for most of us, you know, we're talking about an everyday kind of thing, but this is a, this is a battle. You know, we can't, we can't afford to take a day off and it starts with making sure the simple disciplines of the Christian faith are a central component of our lives. Other things are important, but they're not as important as being prepared to stand for God in this generation. Because if not you, then who? Please, we need to stand up. Yeah, we do. And all that is very well said, Stephen, and you're exactly right. I would urge people, you know, whether it's, uh, to do the extra things that, uh, you know, will further that relationship with the Lord, whether it's taking 15 minutes a day to read your Bible or to download a Bible app on your phone and, and while you're commuting or, uh, you know, waiting to get to an appointment or whatever it is you do during the day, take that 15, 20 minutes, whatever, time you can spend and listen to the Bible from your phone or read it on your phone. There are so many things that we can do to improve our lives, but we get stuck in complacency and, and all kinds of other things, Stephen. And I find, um, I, I myself go through, you know, you have months of, uh, it seems like stagnation. And then, you know, you have this you know, explosion of, of uh, interest again and growth and, and research and learning. And then, you know, you get the stagnation. And in those times of stagnation, you know, it's, it's hard to open the scripture. It's hard to, to make yourself excited, but you still have to continue to do those things in order to maintain that relationship. And that's what we see today. This is what has got us where we are today, especially in the church, is that so many people have, I guess, stopped doing these things to the point where it's basically become an inconvenience for them to have to do it. The, the, some of the most, the most important thing in their lives has become an inconvenience and, uh, aside from the Holy Spirit changing that, I don't know uh, what we can do aside from continuing to spread the message and hopefully that the Lord, uh, you know, uh, waters those seeds that we plant through our message. But it is difficult times, but if, pe- if people think this is difficult, we have not seen anything yet. Not like yeah, what's coming. You're, you're absolutely right about that, Joe. And, and these are the things that are guaranteed to come, that are promised to us in the, in the Bible. And we can map them up to the Olivet Discourse and to what Jesus said about the last days and it all matches. And other times in history have had similar kinds of characteristics. What I would say is that what will shake people out of their doldrums is either going to be an extraordinarily rude awakening from the, uh, collapse in trust of the existing systems of the world that will leave people without an anchor uh, and having built their lives on a foundation of sand when that when that foundation is washed away great is the fall of that house and so people in that kind of situation would be reaching out and trying to grab a hold of anything that they could find and that is the ideal situation for deception to arise however in advance of that and even during that scenario it is really critical that we represent God in the way that he deserves to be represented. And not to repeat myself, but what will catch people's attention 
you know, is not some other gimmick. There's enough gimmicks and, um, and productions and, and sight and, and sound and everything else like that that the world has to offer. But where we can compete, where we can outperform is by displaying the power of God in the power of a transformed life to do things that are not normal, that are supernatural, like truly forgive someone, truly love someone, maintain our faith even through trial and hardship and exhibit a strength of belief and a strength of compassion, the kind that is discussed in the New Testament, a love of one another for for our brothers and our sisters in Christ and people writ large that causes us to stand apart. And that is not going to convert everyone, but it can catch the eye of enough people to for them to at least wonder, at least question initially, well, there's something different about this. And maybe, maybe it takes a tremendous amount of planting seeds directly, indirectly, vicariously, etc. But God gets the glory for the increase in every way, shape, and form regardless. And so ultimately, our peace and our solace has to be in God. And so if we are not going back to the word and into prayer to be fed and restored and strengthened, then we're not going to be able to stand at all. And so, Joe, what you were talking about, those periods of stagnation or those plateaus, typically in a pattern of growth and improvement for anything, things don't just go up in a, in a straight and steady line perpetually. There are ebbs and flows, and usually even if you make an improvement and you make it to some level, then there's, um, there's a general kind of plateauing before you make another discrete jump up and another improvement. And because we are in this world and we're fighting against this body of death in the flesh, usually when we stagnate, we're actually slipping down a little bit, not just relative to where we could have been if we continued to press into the Lord, who will endlessly refill and give us more energy to continue along that path, but because, you know, there's a, there's a gravity to sin, there's a gravity to the world that has a tendency to pull us, pull us back in. But ultimately, gentlemen, it has to be from scripture. And so I'm going to read, uh, part of, part of Psalm 37 so that we can make sure that we're going to the word of God to receive what he has for us. A, a word in season, uh, a precious word for how we should conduct ourselves in this time. So Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So there's something to call out there in those verses. The the classic is, you know, the desires that God will give you. It's not that God is going to grant all of our wishes and our, all of our satisfactions, that he is going to give us new desires. We will begin to desire what he desires. And there's no better alignment for our lives than that. That is when we can see and a path towards living a meaningful life with whatever amount of days we have left. 
And it's easy, this fatalistic attitude, this lie, it will creep in and say, well, I haven't seen justice, and so it's never coming. I haven't seen righteousness even in my entire lifetime, and so, you know, it's it's enough. It's enough. I'm, I'm giving up. I'm throwing in the towel. Trust in the Lord and do good. Mm-hmm. It yeah. is true that this this applies both to the current situation and to the final fulfillment of the new heavens and the new earth. But these are critical words for us to understand now. Joe? Yeah, they are. And Stephen, I just take a, took a glance at the clock. We only have about two and a half minutes left. And oh. this was a very, uh, a, a very uh, important hour. We covered a lot of ground, especially, uh, and most importantly, uh, about Jesus Christ and, and the spiritual battle that we are engaged in. And uh, I, I guess on, on the final uh, comment I'll make on that is, uh, you know, we have seen such damage to the Christian church, and we talk about it all the time, and many people don't like the fact that we focus on it, that the churches, it's not just the world anymore, it's the churches who are accepting of this behavior. And I read a great book over the weekend, Stephen, and I got it off online for free. It's called Past, Present, and Future. It was a sixth edition from 1914. And it's all about the scripture and angels and salvation and whatnot. And there was a, a quote from that document that I wanted to read about the times that we're in. And it's just the fault says the following. Every, uh, every artful device of Satan and the evil angels have since been used to lead men to follow them into sin and rebellion against God. It is well for a man to know the strength of the foe he has to meet. Satan and his angels have on earth the same wisdom and much of the power which they had in heaven before their fall. Add to this the 6,000 years of experience in their terrible work. In heaven, Satan's influence was so great as to deceive and lead into rebellion a vast number of angels. If his influence was this high in heaven, what uh, it is easier for us to understand how it is possible to lead all of mankind astray. And then it goes on from there. But it's a very true statement, and this is what we're contending against. So not only do we need to be uh, mindful of our own um, walk with with Jesus, we also need to make sure that we understand what we are up against and being able to recognize how that appears in our everyday life because this is a battle each and every day. But on the other side of that is the Lord and his works, which are obviously much greater than Satan. And he does answer prayers, and he does, uh, as he says, you know, you if you rely on him, he will take care of you. And people just need to understand that. And once they can put their trust in that, that's when the real journey begins. But, Stephen, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, we will be with us tomorrow on The Daily Show, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Holy Spirit leads in a different direction sometimes. If people have questions about the more economic side, the cryptocurrency side, or anything like that, just send me an email on theobjective at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. But, you know, more than a more than a pleasure, it really is indeed a privilege to be able to be here speaking with um, both of you gentlemen and your audience. God bless you guys. May God keep you in the work that you're doing. Thanks for being faithful to your calling and for granting, uh, granting access to this platform. We just love you guys. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stephen. When we come back, Stan Deo is going to take us out as he does each Tuesday in hour number three. Go to standeo.com. There, pull up the show images page, and you can follow along with what he's going to cover. We'll be right back.
hour on this Tuesday, April 3rd edition of the Hagman Report. We are going to be joined by Stan Dale in just a moment, but I want to bring you a quick word about something we mentioned before, which is upcoming in just a few weeks. That is the Occupy 2018 conference, which can be found on Coach Dave Live, also on Hagman Report. It is from April 20th, 21st, and 22nd in Canton, Ohio. There are a number of great speakers. All the information is there on the website. If you're watching the YouTube feed, you can see uh, that is up there now. And you, if you are listening to this, just go to Coach Dave Live. You can register and purchase your tickets there and check out all the, the people who are going to be there. And we're really looking forward to this event um, as we love to, to get together with uh, people like Mike Spaulding and Coach Dave and Russ Dizdar and many others. And we will be speaking there as well. So make sure you get your tickets for the Occupy 2018 conference, which is coming up in less than 20 days. And uh, I remember when we agreed to do that, and it was you know, seeing that we had three months, four months to get our stuff together and our presentations ready, and here we are, just uh, you know, basically days away, and it's coming quick. Joe, what is uh, what's your favorite thing personally about about the conferences? You've been to well, we've all been to quite a few of them, but Joe, you've been to, to many. Yeah, what's it's, your, what's uh, interacting your with the it's interacting face to face with people, getting to meet people, and getting to to talk to them on a on a one on one level. That's so much fun. Um, and, and you have uh, getting to meet, you know, people who've been uh, maybe calling into the show or sending in letters or even other guests who uh, have come on the show several times who you've never met face-to-face. It is just the uh, the fellowship, the interaction with people that I find, uh, I guess, the best part of the conferences because we talk to people each and every day, except they're not sitting in the room here with us. You guys are in your, you know, all respective homes and whatnot. But when we get a chance to get all together, it always makes it very special. And that's one thing, I mean, I remember about all the conferences is, uh, you know, we've been to several conferences from Montana and Florida and uh, North Carolina and D.C. to Canton and on and on and on. Um, and it's just great to, no matter where we go, that we uh, have this awesome uh, energy and great crowd and, and those interactions during that time. That's definitely my favorite. But what about you? Well, it, it's mine as well, uh, and and it's funny because uh, I think the Lord builds a a humbling component into being at these conferences. Now, when I first met Doug and Joe Hagman, it was four years ago at the Whitestone Conference in Bozeman, Montana, and I was a listener to the program and and read Steve Quayle's books, etc. But was able to fly pretty well under the radar there, and then of course. I was blessed a year or two later to start speaking at conferences. And, and it's funny, Joe, because when you're at the conference itself, you can, it's, you can become overwhelmed. And when I say that, I'm not talking about some kind of rock star overwhelming. I mean, you really legitimately want to give a, a nice amount of time to each person who comes up and introduces themselves and their wives and husbands, etc. Uh, and I like that. I think we all do. But what I, what I get a real kick out of is the minute you walk out of the door of that hotel... Then you're just back to John and Joe. <laughs> and then, it's, then you're back to, hey, Joe, can I borrow two bucks because we're going over to Wendy's? <laughs> yeah. uh, and and just quickly about Occupy, I had a talk with uh, Coach Dave the other day. And I said, Coach, what what are you going to talk about? You know, Joe Hagman, Doug Hagman, and myself, We we one thing we have in common is a commitment to never bring the same presentation, albeit to different conferences. This will be our first time out in a number of months. We always bring new material. I said, Coach, what are you talking about? What are you going to touch on? And he said, well, John, I'm going to tell you, Occupy is an action. 
So what you're going to get at the Occupy 2018 conference coming up here in just three weeks is a plan of attack, an action plan, tools being dropped in your toolbox by L.A. Marzulli, Pastor Paul Begley, Russ Dizdar, Joe Hagman, Pastor Mike Spaulding. Of course, I'll be there. And it, the venue is set up for lots of good one-on-one FaceTime. Uh, we get to know you a little bit. You'll get to know us. And I was amazed, Joe. There, There's a few tickets left. And when I say few, uh, there's a few. It, so if you want to go, uh, jump on that. Go to CoachDaveLive.com, and we'll see you in three weeks. Absolutely looking forward to that. We have with us our guest, Mr. Stan Dale from StanDale.com. Go there, grab the show images page, and there you can follow along with uh, what Stan has put together. And, Stan, it's great to have you back on the show. I see you got a lot up there about the um, Prince Mohammed bin Solomon as he has continued to uh, make waves in the news. And the latest from today we have up on Hagman Report where he makes some interesting comments about Saudi Arabia funding terrorism as well as Israel's right to exist, saying that um, he agrees with their uh, their country which is rare when we uh, are talking about these Middle Eastern nations. But from er- what everything you're telling us, Dan, this is not too out of character for this guy. Well, I'm, I'm uh, kind of trying to follow what you said there. Now, you said that, like, that MBS uh, is doing something that's not typical of his country or, or of the uh, of Israel or of the Palestinians. With, with the relationship to Israel, saying that he he agrees with Israel and their right to exist, and uh, for Israel to have its own state, and he does not believe the... Uh, and from what I remember reading the article this morning, he said that, yes, his country has been guilty of funding terrorism and that Israel does have a right to exist, which is a, a rare, I say, in the Middle East where you see all these countries and leaders always saying that uh, uh, Israel shouldn't exist and it should be the Palestinian state instead. Well, you know, it's uh, listening to him, it's kind of like... Uh watching the reaction of um, say an 8 year old child when you tell him that Santa Claus doesn't exist. It's so deeply ingrained in the culture that Santa Claus does exist. Everybody knows that. And everybody in uh, Saudi Arabia and in Israel knows that they are arch enemies. The the Arabs being the, the, the major push as far as negativity toward Israel for 3,000 years or more. So for you know this young prince who isn't even the king yet officially uh, even though he has the powers of, of of his father for all but two things, uh, for him to come out and reverse three thousand years of animus between their countries is astounding. Uh, you know, uh, it's going to create friction within his own uh, party, within his own uh, military, within his own country and his people. Now, the millennials, the, the younger uh, Saudis are tickled to death with the legal changes that Mohammed bin Salman is making in Israel. And by the way, uh, his degree at university uh, uh, measured in law. Um, so if he seeks to change the law and the times, <laughs> as someone else in the Bible is supposed to do, I'm sure he's qualified to do it. He's changing a lot of things, customs uh, in the country. And uh, this move toward Israel, to me, is not genuine. Um, well, yeah, he says yeah, that I they need at, a peace treaty. To he says that Israel has a right to live in their own land, but we have to have a peace agreement to assure assure stability for everyone and to have normal relationships. Yeah, he says that, and 
uh, he, like no other kind of royal beforehand in the Middle East, has the the tenacity, the funding, I mean, billions of dollars, actually trillions, at his uh, fingertips there to throw a carrot to the Palestinians and say, look, um, let's resettle you. I will pay you $100 billion or whatever he comes up with the final figure, and I will help you resettle in countries where you can speak the language and, you know, in Arab countries here, and uh, we'll take care of you. You know, you, you won't be left out, but this is what we have to do to bring peace in the Middle East is to get you guys out of out of danger into a better place to live. So, you know, people are starting to look at uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, as really a kind of Messiah figure in the area because he's actually got the resources and is taking the effort to bring, uh, quote-unquote, peace in the Middle East. And uh, the, wow, yeah, okay, sorry, my computer just went offline. Um, if you look in my show images page at, at image 49, for instance, and click on the picture and, and, and zoom it up. Now, you've probably seen this picture or some similar of the meeting that Mohammed bin Salman uh, and his uh, translator had with President Trump in the last oh, 10 days. Now, MBS is still in the country. He's over in Hollywood, uh, you know, meeting with the, the muckmucks over there. He's leaving no stone unturned. He's setting up a, a media machine. He wants Hollywood to make movies for him and TV serials uh, to guide his people the way he wants them to think in a manner that they can accept, you know, with the movies and TV uh, shows. Now, look at Mohammed bin Salman's picture and at his translator advisor guide. Both of them have their hands clasped together holding their their robes in, right? Well, they have normal clothes under that, but these robes are, you know, uh, ceremonial, and so they, they have to hold them together instead of tying them with some kind of a belt or something. Um, what this does, and a lot of Arab men do this, is it um, holds in their emotions. It helps them to be like a poker player, you know, with a poker face, and they aren't letting anything out. It kind of reminds them when they hold their hands together, keep these things secret, but look okay, look normal. And if you look at his sly look uh, on his face in this shot, and he's looking at President Trump, look at the difference between President Trump, his coat is open, his hands are out, uh, he's open, he's trying to discuss and you know, make points. Whereas Ben Salman is looking at him with a, oh yeah, that's BS look. You could see it there. Uh, we caught this one little you know, slip, this Freudian slip in his micro gestures. And I thought it was really something to bring out to you, to everyone listening here, is that you can't trust the Arabs. You just cannot. Uh, it is endemic in their nature to be traders, at, you know, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, traders, and to get the best price for their product, you know, and this is part of their culture. So we see this, and we see MBS now uh, talking about making peace by buying off, in essence, the Palestinians. Now, this won't work forever if it, if it ever even gets started that way, but he is the only person in history that has the resources and the will to make something like this happen, you know, to bring peace in the region. I don't trust him. I've said this repeatedly. He, he's a very bright fellow. He's young and aggressive. Uh, he's made some mistakes in his military moves, but he's learning quick. And... um Watching him is definitely, in my opinion, watching the growth of the first beast of the Revelation 13 of the Antichrist. Um, you know, I've, I've always had about uh, seven candidates in my mind. I, I show that in my show images page uh, 
if you um, go down to uh, slide uh, 13, you can look at that. We've looked at it a number of times. You can click on that and look at comparisons of the. the you've got it there on the screen. I see that. Um, <clears throat> and this was seeing which of these candidates met the the description, uh, you know, the credentials of the Antichrist. And uh, you'll see that uh, the first column with MBBS, Mohammed bin Salman on the left there, is the one that has the boxes checked. There's only one or two boxes for any of them, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, in my opinion, still need to be filled. But uh, his, uh, we have to wait and see if they worship him as a god there somewhere in the Middle East. That comes later, I guess. But um, anyway, you can look at that page in your time and see the comparisons I've made uh, to, to help us to identify from you know, what we get out of the press and the Internet, who the Antichrist will be. Uh, this guy, as you know, has he's been like a meteor uh, rise to power. He's just, you know, swift, strong. And, uh, you know, he's meeting with uh, Goldberg and uh, Bloomberg and, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and all, all these people, you know, with our president, with the, uh, you know, with uh, General Mattis and stuff. Defense Secretary, he's meeting all the right people, checking all the right boxes to make an alliance with the United States. And for years, I thought, okay, what's going to happen in the Middle East is that Russia and the consortium are going to come down, you know, and attack Israel. But before they can do that, they have to weaken the United States, if not destroy it. Now, that's that was up until young Prince Mohammed bin Salman started to rise to power. Now, then, I see. Don't have to worry about the Russians at this point. This guy is a guy you got to worry about. Um, he's he's going to be uh, cunning, and uh, you know he certainly is not going to change his spots. You know, leopard is kind of one of their uh, you know animal favorites there in Saudi Arabia as a representative token of of their attitude. You know, swift and sly and whatever. He's not going to do that in the space of uh, a year or eighteen months. So what he's doing now is not what. He's really uh, trying to do it's a in chess. It's a gambit, you know. Uh, he's he's up to something. Well, Stan, let's. Hey, by the way, hi, Stan. John Robertson filling in uh, this evening for Doug Hagman, who sends his regards. Uh, he's here with us. He's just uh, in his office. Uh, he's been on phone meetings for the last several hours. But I'm so glad we're speaking about Mohammed bin Salman. And what I'd like to do. Uh, is sort of unpack the last few months with this gentleman, particularly for some of our listeners and viewers who may not have been tracking this gentleman uh, as well as you have and for the period of time that you have here on the Hagman Report. So, so three things of interest. First, we saw what was perceived, at least uh, on by the surface story, the mainstream narrative, that there was this enormous consolidation of power uh, a dragnet thrown over Riyadh, thrown over Saudi Arabia back in September, October 2017. And all of these very wealthy, enormous uh, business icons, luminaries, religious figures swept up uh, and uh, questioned. I think many of them are still incarcerated. So that's point number one. Point number two is you cannot... Uh, peruse uh, zerohedge.com or rtbusiness.com or silver doctors or any of the contrarian economics blogs uh, on a day in day out basis without seeing something written 
about these oil-backed commodities coming out of China, being referred to, of course, as the petroyuan. And then in your show images, I believe it's show image 51, we see Mohammed bin Salman meeting with General Mattis. So, so he's on a rock star tour over here in the United States, Stan. Is this about consolidating power at home, or is it about making sure that the President Donald J. Trump administration stays on board with the petrodollar scheme as cooked up in 73-74 by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger? You know, it's kind of hard to, to know the, the, the truth of the matter, John. The uh, I've wondered about his, his approach uh, coming over here. He's trying to sell off parts of Aramco, the Arab uh, American oil company there in um, uh, on the western edge of the uh, Persian Gulf, uh, the Gulf of Arabia now. Um, I suspect, as do many other people that watch the oil industry, that the Saudi oil fields are starting to uh, weaken. In other words, they're they're being diminished at this point in time. And, you know, he, he wouldn't come out and say that for sure. But they think that what he has stated as his reserves in the international reports uh, are something like, um, well, three times inflated what they really have under the, the ground. We know at some point in time that the pressure on these wells will uh, diminish uh, as they extract oil. Now, if he knows that his oil is going to be, you know, scarce. He's trying to drive the price of it up now. He's trying to sell off parts of Aramco to raise money in advance so they didn't have to do it from oil sales, but from share sales. Um, he's also uh, got Initiative 2030 set up for Saudi Arabia, which is to, uh, is to turn Saudi's, uh, the Saudis, well, their economy toward a non-oil-based income. They want uh, tourism. Uh, they want to film movies there. They, they've already got a tourist park north of Riyadh there, um, you know, an entertainment park. He's releasing a lot of the pressures uh, from the Islamic faith, uh, the way they practice there, on the youth so that women can go to outdoor stadiums and, and, and watch football games or whatever they're playing in, in the stadium without wearing the, the mask and, and uh, can just be like a normal person, almost. And they can drive now. He's, uh, he's allowed the Saudi women to drive. You can see that he's appealing to that um, that middle class there, that, um, that millennial group, saying, look, I'm going to make great changes for you, and, and we're going to go places. So he, he's got their support because he's giving them things that they would like to have and have been denied for decades. And he's encouraging foreign investment into his uh, uh, world uh, investment fund. I think it comes through his uh, banking partner there in um, uh, Jeddah. Uh, there's an international bank there for Saudi Arabia there that does investments overseas. Now, he's also spent time, as you saw there in Image 51, uh, with the leaders of the economy in Wall Street. He is driving, that's his important thing. The next important thing is what the United States does in Syria and to keep the United States on side. Um, I, I'm reasonably certain that the ones that will give America the most trouble are going to be the Russian alliance, you know, Gog and Magog, uh, that group coming down later. What uh, Mohammed bin Salman is trying to do, instead of fighting the U.S., and instead of trying to you know, plot the, the demise of the United States or the weakening of it so he can go into Israel, 
is to make the U.S. a friend on the surface, to make Israel a friend on the surface. And so by peaceful, you know, flatteries, uh, you know, he is bringing together a peace agreement in the Middle East based around the Palestinian issue with the nation of Israel. Um, so it's so obvious to me that he's doing all the things that the Antichrist spoken of in the manner that, that Daniel the prophet spoke of him. It, it, he is doing this. He's, he's likable. If you forget Bible prophecy and just look at the man, uh, he's a reasonably handsome man, you know, for, you know, the, the, that part of the world. And he's charming. He can just charm, you know, everybody that he meets with, uh, man, woman, child, whatever. Uh, he, uh, has control of so much money, so much power, and he's not afraid to use it. But he's doing it in a gentle manner. Okay, look, I'm stopping corruption and this kind of stuff. One of the other things he has on the back burner, uh, starting in Saudi Arabia, will be using a type of a Bitcoin thing, but it's going to be more called blockchain. And blockchain is a method of doing business where if you buy or sell an asset like a car, that the person you bought it from, his details are tagged onto that, that global record of that car. So that no matter how many hands it goes through, there's a, a chain of of evidence that he was showing who bought it, how long they had it, and, and that kind of information in the blockchain. He's supporting that kind of a thing and wants to eventually see that go not only business to business or, um, you know, asset trades. He wants to show it as individuals so that your money, how you get it and where you spend it will all be a matter of blockchain records. Tremendous amounts of data will be required for this, but he's pushing for that because he says he'll be able to monitor buying patterns of what people are short of, what they need, uh, you know. Yeah, and, Stan, uh, real quick, how familiar are you with the blockchain technology? And I'll just say I'm familiar with it to the extent I couldn't – I understand the concept of it. That's about as much as I get. Right. So what do you want to know? Well, uh, many people say that this is the – this could be the future from the Federal Reserve, that this type of technology will – could give us true economic freedom, and I don't, I don't know enough about it, I guess, to know if that's true or not. But to see the uh, the prince, the Saudi prince, who's making all these moves, um, accept this and, and run with it, I, I guess it lends more uh, credibility to the arguments that people make that this could be a technology for a future away from the uh, currencies that we have right now, and could eventually maybe be a world currency at some point. Oh, that's where he's going. Uh, the The whole um, Saudi plan at the moment is for a global government, a, a global nation state. Uh, that famous picture that we've all seen where President Trump and the president of Egypt and King Salman and uh, uh, President Trump's wife, they all had their hands on a glowing ball, a white ball there when uh, President Trump visited uh, Saudi Arabia. And that ball was a ball of the earth and the nations. And even before, you know, Trump ever became president and stuff, these guys, the Saudis, were trying to set up a global concept for a global state, nation state. And to do that, um, one of the first things that this young prince did after he, uh, you know, got through with his little gambit down in Yemen was to, <clears throat> was to start looking at ways to, um, uh, get rid of corruption uh, among the, the leaders, the rich people, etc., of Saudi Arabia. 
and he started digging into their their, their records and and uh, the computer records showed that you know this guy and that guy had you know stolen money from uh, deals they've made with the government or on behalf of the government so he was able to find these people using this technology so what he wants to do and uh, you know people will support this they already are is to expand the blockchain instead of business to business transactions or you know international exchanges of money through banks is to also take it down to a personal level so you have a global numbering system and it will show that uh, people can you know buy and sell all over the world using the same digital currency there won't be any exchange rates that kind of stuff and as far as fraud and stealing you know uh, digital money there'll be a, a tracer they'll be able to trace everyone who's criminally behaving with the money and so that's why he's, you know he's getting a lot of support for it because he's taking down the rich first and uh, then he's going to say now look this is for you the people um, this will protect you we'll we'll monitor your money and if people need more money in an area we just push a button and we'll help uh, in the case of catastrophes or or need i mean the argument's going to be presented in so many ways so good you know so so bright that people will race and run and rush to sign up for this numbering system and it's just like we're talking about in the bible <clears throat> the numbering system will be um a method of worshiping the world leader at that time but it'll also be your main way to buy and sell and to own property and pay taxes now i don't plan to be here when that happens i do think that the rapture will occur before that happens and that you know we'll watch it from a high vantage point <laughs> not down on the ground here but he is he's definitely doing that and what this blockchain gives him is a long string of information on anything uh on you know uh let's call the new world currency um you know uh, digital dollars it will show every digital dollar that a person earns or is given or steals whatever it'll show it in his account but not only will it show that 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 digital dollar there it'll say this digital dollar came to him from Joe Blocks over in Montana you know who paid for a product that this guy sold him and um you know that dollar for that guy in Montana he got it from an inheritance from you know blah 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 it it's an enormous amount of data but it's a, a chain of uh, of custody if you wish, or a chain of of uh, travel for either the digital currency or for the assets and it's a you know wonderful concept um you know, you have before you there in the computer record everything that comes and goes as far as money and assets you've got a record of who did it where they did it and with the supercomputers like we've got over in Nevada and elsewhere uh in Europe uh you can process that data just in the blink of an eye and uh, know everything you need to know about somebody it's absolute control and as we know absolute control corrupts absolutely but right now he's a fair-haired boy and it's funny the the absolute control some people as i just mentioned before are calling this absolute freedom from you know the financial system we have now and i guess that's true in a way until they turn around and use it for that absolute control and uh you know we've been seeing the the push uh to do that for a long time now and and uh it seems as though our the time is almost up on our monetary system you know we how much debt can we create in the world before everything goes belly up and at that point when that happens uh, i believe that the the powers that be these new world orders satanically have to have that system in place ready to go otherwise they risk 
you know, just mass chaos, world chaos. And I don't think that they're going to let that happen. Uh, they'd lose no, too much I, revenue. They've been testing it. This uh, blockchain stuff and even Bitcoin to a degree has been part of the test to see how people react to very stimulus threats or good things or bad things, whatever. As you say, they're testing it now before they get to the global situation where it has to, to run, you know, the whole world. But this boy, I mean, when I call him boy, this man, this young man, he, uh, he just has all the markers for a great leader for the planet as far as people can see what he says, you know, I mean, and what he does. It's the, the behind the scenes of this guy you gotta watch. And so many people don't have the, uh, biblical or prophetic understanding. And even those that do, who haven't heard you or other people teaching this, might not even consider that this uh, person is that role or exemplifies that role. And that image 13 that you had up there, uh, I like that a lot, comparing uh, all the different Arab leaders and all the characteristics of what the Antichrist does and uh, you know, putting all that information there. That's a really helpful tool. I'm going to make sure I download that when I get home and save that. But it is something like we've never seen before. And to see the, uh, you know, the red carpet rolled out and the acceptance and, and uh, availability of all the top people in, in political and business and economic world, uh, you know, meeting with this man should tell us a lot, especially from, uh, you know, our point of the, our point of view. And it, it seems like he's not making enemies anywhere and he's making all the right decisions on top of that consolidating power while appearing to, to lock up, you know, those funders of terrorists and take their wealth, as he did. Um, he's doing all the right things, and it's something we definitely need to keep our eye on. And, folks, if you are interested, uh, for years Stan has been talking about uh, uh, Prince Solomon, long before he has taken his role. And he and Stan has told us for a long time that this is a guy that needs we need to keep our eye on because it is uh, definitely fascinating to watch, as you said, his rise to power. But, um, Stan, while we're talking about the Middle East, I'm very curious now because I just looked into number 40, 53, the tomb of Eve. I've never heard of this before. So I was reading through the, the Wikipedia page and people believe that this is where Eve was buried. Yeah. Um, um there's, um, let's see, where is that map? If you, uh, uh, let me just click on image 54 and then to that one. That's not the one we want. Let's try that one. See how much room we've got now. All right. Um, I was hoping to get a bigger map. Uh, I think I have one down here somewhere that I, yes, uh, image 29. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, not big enough. Um, uh, what I was trying to show you was the, um, Oh, I'll tell you, we look at image 26, uh, the Atlantis picture. Um, if we click on that and then on image 11 and that, which will give you a big picture of Saudi Arabia turned on its side so we can see all the water around it. Um, if you, are, are you there yet? Have you? Yeah, I got it. Okay. Now where the word Atlantis is, that's it. That's the one, uh, up there where the, the word Red Sea and white is, uh, that is just above where Jeddah is. And if you look from, the left to the Gulf of Aden and all the way up to uh, the Sinai Peninsula on the right side, of, you know, there at the Red Sea. All along there, there are burial places for biblical characters, and there are references to um, the Garden of Eden. Now, 
the Arabic legend says that the Garden of Eden was down in Yemen somewhere, and that um, it. Uh, that's why they call it the Gulf, the Gulf of Aden, because Eden in, in the Hebrew, the local vernacular, is pronounced Aden. So they have the burial place in a uh, an extinct crater cone there uh, in Yemen, uh, and the burial place they say is for Cain and Abel, and that Cain was shown by a raven how to bury Abel in that spot. Now, uh, then you go uh, uh, along the coast up to underneath the Red Sea thing where it says Jeddah, and you see, okay, Eve was buried there. Well, you come down toward the L and the A of Atlantis, and you come down about 30 miles, and there you'll find Mecca, and that's where they reckon Adam is buried. Um, and if you look at Egyptian records, you know, ancient records, they even talk about uh, a god, a superman named Set, who came out of the desert and became one of their their pharaohs in Egypt. Um, Seth, Set, um, there are just a number of things that do all kind of relate to the Garden Eden in that part of the world. Now, I know why they called um, the, the uh, place here at the tip of Yemen, uh, why they called that um, uh, Eden and why, why Cain and Abel were buried there and that kind of stuff in the Gulf of Aden. It's because the locals around the area knew that that area there in Yemen had a great deal to do with the Garden of Eden and the arrival of Adam and Eve and, and their children and descendants. They came down from where you see the sign of Africa there. That's over the a triangle called the Danical Plains, very hot and volcanic, but it is fed with water coming from up in Tanzania, way up the great East African Rift. And that was the migration pattern after God took Adam and Eve and take them out of the, the Garden of Eden and, and let them, you know, have children and stuff. Uh, they migrated down, down, down to where the tip of Yemen is there. And that's where the, the exodus from the Garden of Eden compound or, you know, the, the adjacent land, that's where it started into Saudi Arabia. And of course, that's then where those children of Adam and Eve, um, met with the fallen ones uh, over toward the Straits of Heracles you can see that in the right side of the picture and that was the, the Genesis 6 thing where the fallen ones were mating with our women, the, the Adamic women and producing hybrid beings that were illegal according to God's law so all that, that whole area there is alive with the Garden of Eden legends and myths and whether Adam is buried in Mecca and whether Eve is in Jeddah or whether the the, the Gulf of Aden is, is really that it, it really doesn't matter it is showing you that it was uppermost in the minds and the myth of the whole area that this was close to where God created man you know the Adamic man and where the uh, the pollution of the human gene pool occurred and where the great flood occurred all of that history is right there in front of us and I just find it amazing if you read the Arabic lore and stuff uh, whether it's true or not, they do put great emphasis on it. They think it's a good thing to have these places, uh, you know, in remembrance of the progenitors of you know, what we are today. Isn't it, isn't it incredible? I mean, just, yeah. Yeah, it is. And, uh, I guess I've never considered, uh, you know, where some of the, especially some of the old, old testament people have been buried, um, and that they would even, you know, I know that in Egypt, they've mummified, uh, and they're dead, many of their dead, which still hold today. I mean, you can unwrap them and still see the type of clothes they were wearing, you know, some 4,000 years later. 
which is absolutely uh, astonishing. But I would just think, you know, there would be nothing left except that area, but uh, how wrong I might be. But I've never heard of the Tomb of Eve either, so um, fascinating. Something I'm going to have to to look into. Well, I stumbled across it, I suppose, like others that have researched the area when I was trying to, you know, get into the mind of our Arab neighbors, you know, and see what makes them tick. And I found out that that's an ongoing ongoing project. It'll take years to to get to the bottom of it. But um, their history, their alliances, uh, their battles in in house, uh, all these things. Um, and you realize this is the area where Israel was in exile for forty years when they were wandering the desert, you know, to to accomplish God's plan for Israel. So. Moses and and the tribes they they met these people you know they traded with them um, and there's a crossover in the legends uh, we call King Solomon we call him Solomon in the Hebrew his name is actually Shlomo in the Arab history of the region which goes back to the Assyrian kings list to uh, to um, Shalmaneser the Great you know, the first well, who founded the Assyrian nation. And you see that the territory that Assyria occupied uh, up until about 900 and some odd B.C. did include Jeddah. Now, who was born in Jeddah? Prince Mohammed bin Salman, part of the Assyrian Empire. Now, this is important. Um, I think he's going to play heavily on these burial places and on their, their related uh, history to the Garden of Eden. And to Adam and Eve and their descendants. Um, if he's, if he's clever, he's going to even play on the, the fallen ones, you know, and the giant bones that have been found up in Jordan and, and up in, uh, Syria to make it a, a place to visit to see the original Atlantis. Um, you just watch and see, he, he's going to pull some incredible stunts to get the support of the world and they will just wonder after him, you know, you know, his, his technology is going to have, which, it's not all by his doing. He's being given that by uh, follow ones. But, jeez, um, oh, Stan, I, I, I think that this may be one of the more prescient things that you've shared with us recently on the Hagman Report. I'd like to to uh, make sure I understand this. So bear with my analysis here. But here we have uh, uh, Prince Ben Salman, and he's on tour here in the United States. And we've heard for many years with from many many guests on the Hagman Report that, as you said a moment ago. There may not be as much uh, reserve oil beneath the sands of Saudi Arabia as they would have the world believe. And you said it could be perhaps inflated by as much as 300%. Now, when we look back in recent history, I I always pause thinking back to the Persian Gulf War of 1990-91 and when we saw Saudi Arabian boots on the ground, uh, air assets, and even armor and tanks moving in tandem with the U.S., France, uh, Britain, etc., and that was so unique to see to see this Arab country fighting alongside Western Christendom. However, when we move forward in history to 2003, 2004, 2005, the the W. Bush coalition of the willing, if you will. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia was noticeably absent at that time. Tell me if this is accurate, Stan. If they are beginning to run out of fossil fuel, and if an, an individual like Ben Salman is looking forward to his children, his grandchildren, etc., 
And if they have ancient knowledge, and as you indicated a moment ago, if I'm inferring correctly, perhaps passed down from the Watchers or from demonic entities, then they can utilize this information to blow open a realm of biblical and perhaps even pre-Adamic tourist tourism that would literally blow the world's mind. Now, that's sort of the commerce side of this stamp. Bear with me. I'll hand it back to you. But there's also a geopolitical side to this, which is we know in 73-74, when Kissinger and Nixon created the petrodollar, at that time, Saudi Arabia was surrounded by enemies, and they were the last familial absolute monarchy on the planet, and they needed the military might of the United States to ensure that the royal house of Saud would remain in perpetuity. But, of course, the quid pro quo was Saudi Arabian oil would be sold, and then ultimately OPEC oil would be sold in U.S. dollars, thus giving the U.S. dollar relevance. If they are, in fact, running out of oil at this time, then they may stand in the near future, have difficulty keeping that quid pro quo balance. And yet, surrounded by perceived enemies, the greatest of which being Iran, they still need that big stick in their back pocket, being the U.S. military. Stan, what do you think? Well, you've covered a lot of ground there, John. Uh, I do agree. I I couldn't uh, hear a thing that I disagree with what you laid out there. Um, we do know that uh, the, the adiabatic oil theory says that the oil, some of the oil formations will replenish over time, but I think it's a matter of how much time, how many hundred years it takes to replenish a uh, well to be as viable as it was when we tapped it. Um, the the kind of interesting historical note about this that the United States uh, went over just after World War II, like in the, the uh, late 40s. They went over into Saudi Arabia looking for oil and uh, didn't find it immediately, but they went to an island called Damam, D-A-M-A-M. Um, well, it's actually connected to the mainland, but it used to be an island, uh, over on the Persian Gulf, and uh, in, it, you know, it's part of the, the Saudi Peninsula. And they found at Damam uh, a hill, you know, a very circular, nice hill, and they started drilling test wells there. And they drilled six of them, and in the six they got water, only water. The seventh one, they got oil. And today, there are a bunch of Aramco, uh, you know, Arab, American Arab oil company storage tanks sitting right on the top of, of that hill. That is sand that buried, uh, Poseidon's castle, his island, as spoken of in the Atlantean tales, you know, by the, the, the Greek, uh, history, by Plato. So, we started the oil rush there. They bought, Americans bought the first oil rights from a sheikh there and paid him, I don't know, thirty, forty thousand in gold, uh, which he treated better than paper money. And then it, it started there and spread out all across the country in the various holdings that they've got uh, today. But we started their oil um, industry with that, that simple transaction there. And it was on the, the ashes, in essence, of the Atlantean, uh, Legend, you know, uh, of Saudi Arabia and Damam Island. It's a side point, but anyway. Now, the the Saudis realizing that they have got a weak asset there, and knowing that a lot of other people, you know, in the know suspect that, are are not permitting, uh, you know, um, objective for third party uh, checking of their oil reserves that they stake. 
for that reason we're all suspicious of it uh, that's why he's branching out into other areas of control for the economy one would be uh, he's, he's dealing with the Japanese uh, billionaire as well to set up this blockchain uh, cashless society eventually and if they control the banking of the world you know the Saudis then they're made you know uh, people need banks they need money all the time uh, eventually oil could be replaced by some other type of uh, energy or fuel but uh, in the short term his his uh, investments are at setting up huge investment funds to buy technologies all over the planet and to uh, divest of dependence on the sand and the oil um, so that's his commercial solution there are a lot more uh, details as far as his banking and as far as um, the uh, the world currency and any oil exploration that may or may not be done now he still has not opened up uh, Saudi Arabia to allowing us to have detailed um, high resolution photographs, imagery of his country all of it from orbit or from air um, again it's none of our business they say so uh, even Google Earth had to scrounge places to get pictures of various parts of his country I'm telling you that that was the ancient Atlantis and there was technology there and I know from working with uh, Dr. Teller's group that one of my security team guys uh, had told me about the base they have 120 kilometers outside of, of Riyadh there in the Jabal Tawaik mountain range uh, advanced, uh, we would say alien technology I guess, but it was advanced following technology and Lord only knows how much of that technology they've already transferred to him or, or, or promised him uh, but according to Daniel, the Antichrist of this age will have the help of an alien god, it says. And that help will be uh, in technology that will help him overthrow the strongholds, the mighty strongholds uh, around the planet, you know, of the, the nations. Um, there's just so many things that point to this guy and this time that it's just impossible not to see that he's a real threat to, our, you know, to fulfilling prophecy. Well, we're definitely going to continue to keep our eyes on them, and we're definitely going to continue to follow your research, as this is so important, and you've been following this for years, Stan, and we can't thank you enough for uh, for the time and, and the insight that uh, you've been able to share with not only us, but with our listening audience. we got about uh, 10 minutes left before the end of the show. What have we not gotten into yet that you want to get into or you wanted to talk about tonight? Oh, a couple of things. Uh, one is image 45. It's a video. If you click on it, uh, on the actual text below, you'll get to the, the video. If you click on the picture, you'll see a zoomed up picture of what I'm going to talk about. It's a comparison between 2011 and 2018 of the tectonic plates of the planet, uh, showing, um, where they were then and where they are now. And you'll see that, uh, excuse me, some of these arrows, like over in South America, over to the right of the, the, the image there, that they're at right angles. The black, you know, is different than the red one. It's at right angles. That's a big shift in the movement of that part of the South American plate. Uh, and then I see one in the middle of the country, like by the New Madrid area almost, the little left of it maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's So the true. black that's lines true. are are what and the red lines are what? The black are well, where they were or? Um, yeah, uh, well, let's see. Black was it where they were? Let me just check and see what he says here. It's one or the other. I mean, black was, red is, or yeah. vice versa. Um, 
and I just can't tell from looking at the video here. He does tell you the video, and you get it and look and see. But the point is, whether it's black or red is old or new, uh, in the space of seven years, these major changes have occurred. Uh, and the uh, the indication of that is that there's something very interesting happening on the, the surface of the Earth as far as what's going to be volcanoes and tsunamis and uh, uh, earthquakes. Um Look at um, some of the well. The long line show the the speed vector, if you wish, or the speed of the plate tectonic and what direction they're moving. These are are changing uh, in such a manner that I I'm going to take this image we've got here of the map and I'm going to stretch it around the globe in one of the programs I've got here and see what it looks like stretched over the sea bottom and stuff to see you know what these things are affecting. Yeah. Um, and what I find interesting is in each uh, geographical location, it seems that they're all moving in the same direction. But when you get out of that geographical location, they could be going in the other direction. Uh, but That's all right. those, those same ones are clumped together, and that are all moving in the same way. There seems to be a pattern to this. Yeah. Now, you see, this is interesting to me because uh, I, I showed in the Atlantis lectures about the asteroid that came down, at least one, maybe two at the same time, and hit the east coast of India. You can see India there on the map. And it was going from what you're looking at here from left to right and down a bit. And look at the arrows. If it broke up Pangaea, if that that asteroid impact broke it up, you can see that um, Africa, uh, Europe, Russia, uh, uh, you know, Australia, they're they're moving in a general direction up toward the pole, up toward Alaska, maybe. But then when you look at the Australian, uh, sorry, at the Pacific plate, the um, the area surrounded by the arc of uh, a fire, the ring of fire, it's called sometimes. You can see the arrows reverse, so it shows that basically they're all moving toward a, a a point somewhere off the coast of Japan and out in the ocean a bit there in a trench. Uh, why? I, I, you know, I would expect all the arrows to keep going in the same direction because they got knocked apart, um, but they're not. Um, and there's very kind of stagnant motion over in the Atlantic where the ridge formed and I would have thought there would have been more action there but I'm trying to figure out where the United States and, and South America is, where they fit in to the uh, coastlines of uh, Asia and, and uh, Oceania What about those um, two long ones in Central America that seem to go almost in the opposite direction as, as the rest of them around there? There was an asteroid impact there. You can see the, the little kind of footprint of like a fat pickle that runs off to the right uh, of, of those two areas you're talking about. You can just see it in the seabed there. There was at least one, maybe two asteroids that hit there at some time. And that uh, I guess that's responsible for that uh, breakaway plate movement. We know the Chicxulub meteor hit uh, in the middle of the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico up there on the, on the Yucatan Peninsula. You can see one of these arrows goes right through that that you're talking about. Um, so Understand there were a lot of impacts. I found at least, uh, I think, seven now large impacts that hit uh, in the various oceans of the continents on their on their borders and uh, caused all this strange movement of, of the tectonic plates. In my opinion, the research shows that the tectonic plates don't move gradually, you know, inches per year forever and ever and ever. They are slowed down. Uh, drastically from the first uh, motions when that asteroid hit over on the east coast of India and shoved everything over toward where the Pacific is 
um, and, and, and push seabed, you know, six million square miles of it up underneath New Guinea and, uh, Indonesia. When it did that, it, um, it set in motion things that, that we're, you know, officially we can't see yet, but we have with these seven major, uh, asteroid impacts. I can see one on the east coast uh, or, or inside the east coast of the United States. There's one that came in from the Great Lakes area off to the right of that and down. Um, these things are teaching us how to reconstruct the ancient history, but it occurred rapidly. And when that impact occurred, it shoved stuff apart over like maybe several hundred years, um, in the time of Peleg. And it's, it just accelerated, you know, to such an extent that we had a very rapid displacement. But if you look at a curve, it was in the, when it got the input, the impact of the asteroid, it went like that. That was the high speed. And then it slowed down like this. And we're down here now to inches per year. And our scientists say, that's the way it is today. That's the way it's always been there for, you know, post hoc ergo hop, uh, prompter hot. It's going to always be this way inches per year. But it's not. It's a d- diminishing curve from the initial impact. So these things help us to kind of understand these flow patterns. But as I say, until I get this on a globe and have another look at it with the ocean bottoms, you know, and the bathymetry put onto it, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm going to say about <laughs> why they're doing it where they are. This, this huge motion of the Pacific plate, you know, uh, and the Australasian plate, why? You know, all the others are slow movement, but the, over the ocean, over the water, it's long, fast movements. Why? Yeah. In the wrong direction. I mean, you know, anyway, that's, a lot of questions. That, oh, I know, it keeps us busy at night. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, a couple of other things quickly. Let's see here. Um, okay, image 42. Um, there are, uh, uh, as I show there, there are about, uh, Fourteen thousand pieces of stuff floating around up there. Their rocket bodies or you know, debris from something, or some of them that are active satellites. And this uh, is from the Business Insider. And if you look at it, you'll see that Russia is responsible for, um, you know, more of the junk up there and the useful junk than the United States. The United States is uh, responsible for more than China. You'll see those. Three circles are the major contributors to the junk floating around us up there. So much so that the Russians, and, and I'm sure we've done the same thing, have been designing um, a system to go up and wipe out uh, dead satellites or junk. Now, when I say wipe out, I don't know whether they're going to break them up or whether they're going to uh, you know, cause them to diminish their orbit so they burn up in the atmosphere or what. Um, the... The easy solution would be to get rid of all the satellites and just throw a bag of sand up there at 17,000 miles an hour. It spreads out over all the pathways of the satellites, and a grain of sand traveling at a relative speed of 34, 35,000 miles an hour will take out all the satellites. But you can't do that, obviously, because we depend on these. So this map uh, does show you the major players up there and uh, who has the most to lose. Uh, and and uh, I, I think that there's uh, an article that goes with that if you click the text. Yeah, I'm, I'm here looking at it right now from Business Insider. And I, th- I bet this was in response, too, because we just saw that Chinese satellite crash back down to Earth uh, in the Pacific there, and many people had their eyes on that. But the, all this space junk is definitely, uh, you know, I, I don't believe it. it. It's crazy to think that there's so much stuff floating out there. And, Stan, let me ask you this. With all the uh, the, the travel that we've had to space in other countries, and uh, do you believe that they're 
that they have mastered space travel, that they have been able to weaponize space, and that there are because we see the UFO uh, phenomenon constantly. It's been ongoing for for so long now, and it's undeniable that something's happening. But what that something is is the uh, question of much debate. Whether it is you know man-made uh, aircraft or you know fallen angel technology. Uh, but people believe that space has been weaponized, and and that is um, almost ready to go. I mean, ready for the great deception. Oh, I'm I'm sure it has uh, developed a lot further than we're aware of. I'm pretty certain we have a, at least one base. You know, mankind has at least one base on the moon, um, perhaps on the dark side, but uh, it is there. And our technology is such that we can, you know, make lightning strikes out of the ionosphere down to the surface of the Earth. So the Antichrist can, you know, impress people with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are, are geophysical changes occurring as well on the planet, as you know, the military things we're talking about. But the South Pole, Antarctica, is uh, being eroded away by the warm waters around it. So much so that images 43 and 44, you can go look at the articles later. Is that they're, they're thinking about making artificial mountains or, or mm, islands underneath? the ice cap there to support the the ice shelf uh, at Antarctica so that it doesn't continue to melt and uh, break apart the, the ice flow. I don't know why they want to do that really, I mean seriously but uh, they want to try to stop that and keep the ice down there. Um, the uh, An interesting thing slide 40, you can go look at that uh, you know, at the, the, uh, the text, click on that and go look at that uh, from European Space Agency. They're using a technique uh, from orbit. They have been using it for uh, several decades to measure movements of the surface up and down, and that's how they can tell when a volcano is about to erupt or you know discharge uh, uh, magma, whatever, is by watching how it rises or sinks uh, using these um, interferometer images. They're beautiful images. Um, uh, if you um, uh, look at the article, it will explain to you. Uh, how many millimeters, you know, per year they can measure with this. They can even detect when a volcano is going to form for the first time, uh, at least on the surface, by using these readings. Um, uh, it's worth the read, uh, and to educate yourself. One last thing quickly. We've got about, what, 30 seconds? Yeah, we got that. Okay. Uh, image 41 is something I've, I've talked about before a couple of years ago on your show, um, about the, the uh, cloud that uh, Ezekiel 32.7 talks about. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. Well, if you cover the sun with a cloud of dust or whatever, so thick that the light can't get through to the moon, then the moon will obviously not uh, you know, glow at night. Mm-hmm. This, this uh, animation I prepared is from a thing that uh, uh, took place over in the uh, Monoceros uh, formation. Anyway, it's worth reading what I've got there and, and applying this to the dark cloud that Ezekiel's talking about. Because in the space of uh, like uh, six months, this thing went through an entire stellar system out there. That's uh, that's amazing, Stan. And uh, the stuff of deep space, is, I'm very intrigued by that. And thank you for sharing that. That was uh, That's awesome. Well, we've done it again another week. Don't forget the EMP shield. You can find that at standeo.com. It will protect both your home and business from EMP threats, both natural and uh, nuclear, uh, if that ever happens. That's the EMP shield. Go to standeo.com for that. Stan, thank you so much uh, for closing out another great show on this Tuesday. 